Are now recording, and this is out now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is unfortunately not here. He's working. He's got so much work. It's it's, it's sad because it'd be fun to have on some of the commentary tracks. So this is out now with Aaron and Abe. It is a film podcast. Abe and I normally discuss new movies weekly. However, every now and then we have to do these special bonus episodes where it's one of our fun commentary tracks or something completely different. And this is one of our fun commentary tracks. This is episode. This is our commentary track for what is it? September, September twenty twenty. And yes, we are talking David Fincher's Seven this month celebrating its 25th anniversary and there's a david fincher movie actually coming out sometime soon which is a nice thing to say for the first time in six years um so yeah that's what we're gonna do we're gonna talk about seven all about it. it's gonna be a lot of fun and we have a number of guests with us because everyone's really excited to talk about our favorite character actor that's right kevin john c mcginley um okay so let's get to it our guests tonight for seven we have host of the brandon peters show he's <laughs> He can't just tap people on the shoulder anymore. He has to hit them with sledgehammer. It's Brandon Peters. I'm not going to be the person to say the the line, so I'm not going to say it. Not, I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to ask the question. Not me. Also joining us from the Milky Way Blues, he believes the world is worth fighting for. It's Yancey Burns. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. Yancey's not going to say it either. Also joining us from Why So Blue, I guess he may or may not be sitting around reading guns and ammo while masturbating in his own feces. It's Peter Paris. How did you know? Hey, what's up, everyone? And lastly, joining us from Forbes, he really wants to know what's in the box. It's oh, Scott Mendelson. Aaron went there. His courage. <laughs> what was in the box was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> I brought and a box, box, guys. I brought a box. For us <laughs> um, all right. How are all of you doing this evening? As well as can be expected. This is going to yeah. be a good one. There all are, but this is going to be a good one, too. Good. Nice, upbeat, heartwarming, <laughs> empathetic picture to celebrate these grim times. We're, we're knocking out 2020 with a lot of themed episodes here, that's for sure. We had a lot of, a lot of fun to come. We're talking about seven. Uh, but yeah, no, happy to have you all here. All, no, gonna... <laughs> all of you are here. We have a full house talking about seven for this commentary track. I will explain that in a second, but I do want to note... I, this is an out now commentary. That said, some of you might be listening on the from the Brandon Peters show. That's right. We are we are cohabitating this these commentaries to get them out to more people. So you might be hearing it on my show, or you might be hearing it out now. Either way, thanks for listening. Yeah, and we're uh, we're actually looking at each other for a slight change of pace. We're yeah. seeing how that goes this time around. I, I'm already getting sick of it, but we'll you know we'll see we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, we're all going to be looking like like eye above each other watching. <laughs> Our screens. I'm Unless someone's gonna, got a little window and like watching seven in a little window. Which... I'm I'm only gonna stare at Peter while watching this movie. So we'll get to that. Um, all right. What we're gonna do here? We're doing a seven commentary track. That means all five of us have the movie seven currently paused at five seconds in. We should have done seven seconds. What the hell were we thinking? Yeah, I don't, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll do it for the next Bond. We never do that for Bond movies either. We've done like oh, yeah. eight Bond commentaries. Oh, oh, see, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> But we have it positive five. We're doing the prequel. That's what we're doing. Uh, and we're leaving room for a sequel to that prequel. So we'll have six next time. But Solo. we're going to talk about seven. We have it positive five seconds. And on the sound of go, we're all going to press play and start talking over the movie. So if you plan on watching seven with us, do get the movie paused right there and you do all that. And you're fine. If, you, if you're just listening to listen, good on you. Here you are. You're listening. I mean, 
you've you've already won basically because this is going to be a lot of gold um yeah so i think we're all good you guys ready yep all right all right three two one go new line the house that freddie built (laughs) well you know i I was going to ask that it's the house that freddie built but was new line nick cassavetes before that it was just an acquisition studio yeah primarily they were just buying up so they may have shown some of his films but they were just buying up stuff and then they made a movie called uh alone in the dark it was one of their first ones uh with jack shoulder who would later do the hidden and nightmare on elm street 2 for them um alone in the dark with donald pleasance and jack palance real cool movie um but they freddie was their big like they scraped together all their funds, blood, sweat, tears, relationships were ended, families were bro- broken apart, and became their big hit, and and cemented this as a genre studio for the most part, right? Kind of, yeah, yeah. a Man. lot of interesting stuff. Was there anything before Lord of the Rings that was like considered somewhat prestige for New Line? Uh, prestige might be pushing it, but I would argue that. Frankly, seven. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, brave so reviews. They had, they, I mean, they had Rush Hour. That was yeah, hits for them. They were perhaps by virtue of being a scrappy underdog studio, even when they were you know bought by Time Warner. I would argue they had their pulse on the zeitgeist, especially the youth zeitgeist, more so than some of their rivals. Um, especially when it came to genre films like uh, you know Ninja Turtles and. Uh, the mask and things of that blade, for example. Yeah. You were somewhat ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, pop culture. So talking about this movie right away, you're throwing in, you got Morgan Freeman and you already get a sense of who this guy is. He is world weary. He's tired. He's out of it. And then you get Brad Pitt literally running right into the movie to be like, I'm the new guy. So (laughs) at this point, Morgan Freeman, does he have, he doesn't have an Oscar nomination yet. Does he? I think he had just gotten one for it was about to no, get right. one he, for, had, he, had, he had driving Miss Daisy. Street he had Smart. Driving, Street Smart. Yeah. He had driving Miss Daisy also. Yep. Yes. Okay, so, so he's already yeah, he got he, a, we know he has a level of prestige attached to him already. He's in a lot of he's, he's got Eastwood films, he's got the prestige movies and stuff. This is after uh, this it, it, he did get a nomination for Shawshank, I believe. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Oh, that's right, the, right, that's right. the one. I was trying to think of the other. Like, I know there's like a, a few before that. So, yes, he is a name. He's not necessarily a butts in the seats name, but he's somebody that is respected and has a certain gravitas and prestige. And as such, yes, pairing him with a hot young and up and coming star like Brad Pitt in a movie like this was even then considered a smart commercial play. I like to think this actually elevated him to that for like a little bit because he had yeah. like kiss the girls and along came a spider, yes. which is like Morgan Freeman is mm-hmm. don't cross Alex cross in. So he, had, he had that going, which are just which were just knockoffs of this movie, which we will talk about as far as the yeah, influence this had. Yeah, th- uh, this movie, I I was, it was really interesting to me. Like you're talking about like Pitt and stuff in there. I before this, Brad Pitt just seemed like this like pretty face guy in this movie, and Gwyneth Paltrow was someone who I just at the time wasn't. I was like 13 when this came out, so I wasn't interested in what Gwyneth Paltrow was doing. But I saw this movie and it like elevated my interest in them and respect for them. Cause people like that didn't do movies like this back then. Like it was to me, it was like, it was huge. I'm like, Whoa, Brad Pitt. And then he had 
you know, 12 Monkeys was around this same time. So same I, was, I got really on the Brad Pitt train and Gwyneth Paltrow, like I wanted to see stuff she was in. I'm like, wow, these people do pick interesting movies. It really sh- shine a light because Pitt had what, like Legends of the Fall before this and just, I was like, you just like somebody the girls talked about and didn't seem like much. And then I saw this and it really, you know, it was part of my growing up and just not turning my nose up to things um, because of players. And it really helped, you know, transition me to that. Plus, uh, like the opening credits um, uses nine inch nails. And I never, I was like, what? That was, it was crazy to me that a director was using some band that I listened to that was like stupid kid music and it wasn't a teen movie. It was an adult movie using nine inch nails. I was so out, like, I'm so not a, not against nine inch nails, but I'm so not like into that, like, you know, industrial metal that mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't recognize the fact that it was, cause it's a remix. I didn't recognize that yep. it was closer for like years later as far as like, Oh, I do know what this song is. <laughs> Probably also yeah. because I'm looking at these very specific details that we're getting in this opening credit sequence. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, this is also Andrew Kevin Walker. Um, who you talked about before we, when we talked yeah. about Sleepy Hollow. You've got into right. your, how interested you've been in Andrew Kevin Walker. I was. I was like, I'll, I mean, when 8mm was coming, I was like, oh, it's the new Andrew Kevin Walker movie. <laughs> like that was that was how I saw. That's it. what that's what you said when you marched up to the to the ticket booth, dude. You said one for the new Andrew Kevin Walker movie, please. <laughs> yes, the flicky pictures that Andrew Kevin Walker wrote. Uh, Which one is that? The one with to die for is Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, right. Like I went back and watched like Hideaway that he did with like Alicia Silverstone and Jeff Goldblum because I'm like, oh, he did that. Why well, now? I need to check it out. Um, but yeah, and he's been like a. Big, yeah, we talked about the Sleepy Hollow one, but like big ghostwriter in Hollywood too. Like his name's not on a lot of stuff, but he's touched it. Peter, when was the first time you saw Seven? Wait, what? <laughs> when was the first time you saw Seven? <laughs> oh, me? Yeah, I, you. I saw- hi. <laughs> Peter's no. simulating listening to the commentary. I'm sorry, I'm watching. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, Darius. You're watching the credits. <laughs> um, I no, I saw it opening weekend because I'm a, a million years old. So. Uh, Yancey, did you also? See, I saw it in theaters. Did you see it in theaters, Yancey? I saw I saw this opening night as well, and I distinctly remember how startling it was. the The opening credits, the closing credits, which run backwards, the whole movie. Oh yes, right is, is sort of strikingly graphic. Not I don't mean I mean it is, but it's strikingly graphic and in your face in, in a an way atmospheric that way. Yeah, weren't at that moment, so it was very striking. It felt like. Fincher had finally arrived, and uh, it just felt striking and synergistic in terms of a certain revelation that happens later. But I, uh, I saw the trailer in theaters. I'll tell you that, man, it was a good trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen, and I, I, I was like, this premise sounds really crazy to me, 1995, eight-year-old, nine-year-old Aaron. And um, so when I eventually saw the movie on VHS. I was certainly into the movie because it was like, yeah, this delivers on this very creepy premise of a man killing based off these things or having people killed based off these things. He doesn't directly kill anybody, I guess. Um, So that was, which is, it's, it's, I've seen, I mean, I've seen this movie plenty of times. It's one, like most of Fincher's movies. I've kind of, like, I didn't even have to prep for this commentary. I have this movie in my head. Yeah. It's, it's, (laughs) it's been a few years since I've watched it at this point, but yeah, it's not, it's not one that fades really as far as what's going on here. I will say it's funny. This movie comes in uh on the heels of like uh hollywood trying to repeat silence of the lambs a lot like this movie without silence of the lambs this movie doesn't happen and then this movie becomes that next silence of the lambs that begins chasing this visual mainly visually uh but a 
stuff that tries to go for this look that Fincher has for the film. Like it, it's, it has a strong, maybe even a stronger influence over what came after it. than Visually Silence. for sure. Not that that's not to put down tag Fujimoto on Silence yeah. of the Lambs. It's a, right. it's a wonderful movie, but I mean, as far as very stark imagery, that's, you know, very, that's heightened. I mean, that movie's not necessarily heightened More like this. One is, right. look, yeah. Yeah. This one's very much specifically trying to do that. I mean, this doesn't yeah. take, this doesn't take, this doesn't take place in a specific city. It's always raining and it's probably LA. Like it doesn't make any sense as far as like what. Well, I don't is. think it's LA. I, think I thought it was Seattle or something. Well, I think it's shot in LA. I mean, there's, yeah. it's not, it's, it's, it's indeterminate. It's deliberately though. not named. It's deliberately yeah. a, a, ambiguous what city it's supposed it to be. It is Cleveland. Which lends a very, a slightly pulpy quality, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, a graphic novel you might have read in the late 80s. For sure. Yeah. Well, I, tend to, I, I tend to like the indeterminate stuff. Now is the time to bring up that this was the first big film in America of Darius Kanji, the cinematographer. Yes. Mm-hmm. I became a huge cinematography nerd the year before this because they released a documentary called Visions of Light. It's one of the greatest movies about movies ever. It's a documentary about just the art of cinematography and how you can sort of nerd out on just the cinematographers alone. And Darius Kanji here was the first sort of big debut of a major cinematographer after I became aware of, of how important cinematography was. And he... he um, he was already working with uh, with uh, Genet, with Jean-Pierre Genet, with uh, Del Gattesin and City of the Lost Children this the same year. And then, yeah, he gets hired on for seven and like starts what is I feel like you're the first guy in a certain wave of, of, of cinematographers that includes Emmanuel Lebesky and a few other guys where there was a real sort of, yeah, this, this doesn't look like Tak Fujimoto and Silence of the Lambs. We were importing. Like- this is kind of a cross between it looks like a cross between a film noir and then like a 70s gordon willis look it's yeah. There, yeah you know um, well, in relation to what brandon said you're he's you're correct in that it was a film that was in, you know who it was inspired by the success of silence of the lambs but did its own thing yeah. in the same way that you know all of the ya fantasy franchises that failed after harry potter the one that really broke out was was Twilight, which really had nothing to do with Harry Potter. The same way that you know Hunger Games had nothing to do with Twilight, and so forth and so forth. You know, it's a it's a good example of even if you're trying to commercially replicate a prior success, it's a film that a stands on its own, b really does its own thing. You know, at worst, it's a companion piece. Uh, I think Silence of the Lambs is more of a, for lack of a better term, almost like a fairy tale. You know, a very dark, okay. you know, a, gr- yeah. a grim fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, a, you know, you're right. It's more of a, a pulpy film noir. It's very timeless. Um, you know, it happened to come out just before, you know, internet culture and even cell phone culture became popularized. Um, it's the one thing it has above, like, The Matrix, where you have the flip yes. phones and everything that's very mm-hmm. specific to a time period, even though that movie's um, similarly ambiguous as far as the city it's supposed to be in and whatnot. And I, I saw this opening the Saturday of opening weekend. I saw it in a double feature with Cloggers, um, both oh. of which have fantastic opening credit sequences. Uh, yeah, yeah. And leave you feeling happy exiting. Very. The- absolutely. Oh. Honestly, I mean, in terms the, the of- opening of Cloggers is more graphic than anything in seven, I think, as yeah, far as the way they, the way they examine a dead body little. and everything. It's just, yeah. yeah. In the way, not unlike Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this is a film that feels a lot more violent and gruesome and graphic than it actually is. It's actually very, I don't want to say restrained, but let me say careful 
in terms of what it does and doesn't show you on screen. Well, yeah, we're it's seeing very good at suggesting more than you're actually seeing. Well, Which all is, you see is the aftermath. Yeah, like you, you see don't the see the actual violence happening. You know, yeah, with one very mm-hmm. obvious exception, there's only one on-screen murder in the entire film. Which is why I mean, we we can lump like, and we seem like we get to this all the time, but we like we could we could lump the Saw franchise into torture porn, and like the the late the other sequels, they're certainly more graphic. But the first Saw very much owes everything to Seven as far as what yeah. it's doing. Everything yeah. you see, you're not was, seeing much of that a, movie. It was a new, it was a, it was a new, a new vision of griminess mm-hmm. that we hadn't seen before. <laughs> it's like a slick griminess in that you feel it. But it's also a well-produced, well-made movie, so it doesn't, you know, it's it's still pleasurable to sort of see it. But um, uh, yeah, interest. It's an interesting uh, point in, in. Well, in, and to go back to bringing up Nine Inch Nails, this is also the same era where, because Nine Inch Nails is very big in this time, you have Mark Romanek's um, Closer, Closer video. music video, which does the same thing, where it's mm-hmm. like. It's like what was jokingly called like designer cockroach, where it's like it is, <laughs> it go. is, it, it's an aesthetic that is very beautiful, even though it's dirty and stuff. So yeah, I would. And seven to me feels like the culmination. Of that. The, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre feels like you've fallen right. into the universe of like, right. This feels what? like a, a, a Hollywood movie that is presenting a certain spin on grime that is appealing in certain senses because it's not right, even, i wouldn't say this is a depressing movie it actually feels more the, the feel of it is traditionally it feels like a horror movie it looks and feels like a horror movie even though mm-hmm. there aren't really it has you know, a horror aesthetic for sure and it's combining that with this kind of you know pulpy buddy not buddy but cop 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 drama thing so like it's more it's more accessible for a general audience than a, you know a, a standard horror movie as far as say we can add like the the notion of prestige can come to it inherently because it's not just nothing you know, something nothing, for I mean, teens what because nothing looked or felt like this movie in this genre at the time i'm thinking of like presumed innocent and movies that have come out uh, in yes and the co- copycat i think came out shortly after this yeah it was a little yes. after and that's yeah. a more con- and i like it a lot hey reggie kathy <laughs> oh jeez. r.i.p reggie kathy <laughs> the reason i think the first half of fantastic four is actually good <laughs> uh curse you reggie um but no, uh, I like copycat a lot. That's for another conversation. But that is a far more conventional picture when you think of a Hollywood serial killer thriller slash riff on Silence of the Lambs. It's also, again, ironically, a more graphically violent film. With a prestige um, star, I know less, too. Yes, yes. Um, and its own shocking moments, too. It's actually, yeah. I mean, two prestige stars, Holly Hunter won the Oscar for... Yes. The, the uh, piano, she had won it two years earlier. Uh, and, you know, I, I, honestly, that's my favorite Holly Hunter performance in Copycat. Um, but Scott, I just, news the piano. Just striking me with these things sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, Scott, I'm assuming you know yes. this. I, I know that Seven was a hit. Did it make like 90 million? How much did it make? It did about 100 domestic from a 13 and change opening weekend, so it played for a while. It broke my heart. It broke my heart at second weekend. Um, Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers was topped by the second weekend of seven at the box office. The long awaited return of Michael Myers um, with the feature film debut of Paul Rudd, Paul Stephen Rudd, um, the final performance of Donald Pleasance, all shattered because of this. All. Um, Yeah, this one did. I think I'm three twenty-seven worldwide. Yeah, had to drive yeah, well, yeah, three twenty-seven on like a thirty million dollar budget. It was huge. Um, Halloween six and fourteen, especially for New Line. <laughs> Big I year mean, for New Line. Prior to the Lord of the Rings films, 
Yeah. Um, prior to the Lord of the Rings films, their biggest films were The Mask, this, and the first couple of Rush Hour films. It's, it's um, wild. Yeah. This, this made a ton of money, and it's coming out. I mean, Fincher's he's like hurting still from alien three because of all that experience. And he's like, I don't want to do this, but like the script is too good. So I guess I'm going to do this. And it becomes a, it like doubles the amount of the alien three made. And so it puts puts him in a good position as far as being a director that had a miserable experience one time and then has this critically acclaimed box office hit the next time. So it kind of like, we almost didn't have David Fincher like that. I don't think people realized we almost didn't. have. He was like, fuck that. Let me do, I'll do commercials. I'll do music videos and whatever, but like movies, no thank you. He was just waiting. The the fact that alien three wasn't a major thing was a surprise because he was waiting to to happen. He'd Mm -hmm. done so many great Madonna videos He's on the Madonna train with all those music videos. This just felt like, Oh, that's David Fincher. The, The alien, which, in retrospect, is, not, is it's you know it's an interesting movie. Alien Three. We have a whole commentary on Alien. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, like it's very much him. Granted, he, yeah. he had his strength. That's a, they didn't know what they wanted from that movie. Obviously, we've, right. we've done two David Fincher movies on this podcast, and what is Alien Three? <laughs> That's for this commentary. It's a movie that I can very easily imagine. Not in three years, the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an exact match, but for me, this reminds me of Rian Johnson's experiences with he makes the last jedi which is very much a a rian johnson picture and it proves very divisive for better or worse we're not going to get into that and then he goes and makes an original studio program or knives out that is very much this you know very much the same style very much the same ideas and once detached from that franchise and detached from the expectations of that franchise it is a critically acclaimed super smash and you get zero of the hand ringing and you know controversy or whatever that greeted the Star Wars film because it's not a franchise picture. That said, exactly. I mean, but this, Star Wars Last Jedi was critically acclaimed. Oh match. yeah, yeah, it's not exact match. It's just no, it made one point three billion dollars. That might, um, the the Alien Three is more nihilistic than this movie. Is what yes. Wait, so just um, curious. I'm just curious. Um, just wanted to ask um, Richard Roundtree on what, the screen. What I would, Wait, what? Richard, Richard Roundtree. Roundtree well, yeah. Yep. Yeah. You got Richard Roundtree. You so got, good. You got a lot of good. Arlie Ermey. Like, Arlie Ermey, yeah. It's like a straight-laced Arlie Ermey. It's <laughs> an inspired cast. Like, it's got good decisions in, like, odd picks, like, killing for, it in different places. So, for what I feel is, like, the first kind of era of, like, David Fincher, I'd say probably from um, Alien 3 to Panic Room. I'd say mm-hmm. all movies in between. Nah, it'd be this to Fight Club. I think Panic Room's where he like starts really ushering. Even the Fight Club's a stretch. Like I think Panic Room's kind of like a bridge. It does yeah. like because he's he's he's, he's, ex- he's experimenting with his camera in Fight Club as far as like I can put it through the trash can and stuff. And then Panic Room <laughs> is all of that. Like, yeah. Uh, what are you sorry, Peter? What you, keep going. <laughs> well, 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 no, no, that's true. I guess, but I was just gonna say like um, of this era, I guess of Fincher. It, just asking everyone, like for me. I feel like this is probably my favorite Fincher, although I do love the game a lot. Um, but I, I was just kind of curious what you guys, is this, or are you guys going to say Fight Club? Uh, Zodiac or Fight Club? It's Zodiac well, and Fight Club. I mean, Fight Club. Like, Zodiac is best picture, I think. But I, uh, that's not of this period. Of his yeah, early Zodiac period, wouldn't count. Like, that's not this era. Like, game. I love the game because I love Michael Douglas. Oh, if, fully, they feel like the same guy. If you're no. speaking of this era specifically, then yes, Fight Club. If we're putting Fight Club, Fight Club, then yeah. Fight Club would be my Fight choice Club. here. Yeah, I think the break is before Zodiac, isn't it? Because that's when he, I think, he matures into. Yeah, I think, well, I, I think there's, I think there's, there's multiple distinct periods. I, I think the, perhaps. I think Fight Club is is the end of this first period. Then I think you get to what you get: Panic Room, and is it Benjamin Buttons after that? 
Zodiac. Zodiac first, Zodiac. then Benjamin Button. I think yeah. that's yeah. its own thing. Zodiac, and then, and then, and then you get to his like trashy airport phase. I guess you get girl with the dragon tattoo and Gone Girl. Gone Girl, yeah. And then like rip like House of Cards, even like I mean, there's things factor. And then Mank is, we'll see what Mank is, I guess. But I mean, Zodiac. I think the same kind of movie. I think Zodiac. He's the filmmaker he was born to be. I think at this point he's still slightly more stylistic. He can't overcome certain elements of the script that are a little bit um, self-serious. I think in this in this movie, I think it's a little when it gets into the seven. Who, who cares about the seven deadly sins except Billy Batson? I never. No one cares about the seven deadly sins, right? So when the movie starts to get a little self-serious about that and sanctimonious, he doesn't quite overcome that. I think he's got slightly stronger material with Zodiac, but anyway. Well, I, think, I mean, I think Zodiac taps into things he feels. Like, if you want to, like, talk to David Fincher about, like, things that are part of who he is as a person, Fight Club maybe does that, but I still think that's more of, like, a, it's more of an F you to people and society in various ways than it is as far as speaking to who he is as a person. Where Zodiac, I mean, he grew up in that area, right? Like, he, like these are things that, that like, matter mm-hmm. to him to some degree, let alone... Or director have, for fire here. Let alone yeah, an evolution filmmaker. I mean, we got a Brahma. We have seven. Then he comes back, you know, like maybe a decade later, we got Zodiac. And then a decade later, we got Mindhunters. That's kind of where his brain's at and exploring it in different avenues. Like one was his first, then he had a prestigious turn on it. And now he explored it in episodic serialized form. But those are kind of you know, the mind of the serial killer and the way he tells an exploratory story. That seems to be something he taps back into. You can map, I mean, this is a little loose, you can map it a little bit to Tarantino where he's making films just to be cool for, to really pare it down with the first few. Um, Jackie Brown is like, well, I just really like Elmore Leonard and I want to do my own take on that. He does that, which still is something like, <sighs> it can work. And then when you get to something like Inglorious Bastards, that feels like I'm doing this now. I'm, I'm, I'm really putting a certain kind of effort into it that speaks to a, a different part of who I am and then, you know, has the matched prestige to go with it where he's gotten like after the kill bills, he's gotten all the kind of how, how big can I make this out of my system? And then let me go to something else. Make a different kind of direction. Pinter is, is he's, he's obviously, if not the best, one of the best working, working directors out there. He sort of resists the, the, the traditional auteur thing of having, I think of having themes that are controlling. I feel like he sort of is a little bit more, do you guys agree with me at all? He's a little bit more uh, sort of genius for hire than, uh, I don't know, idea guy or, or sort of thematic well, guy. Well, he doesn't write. He doesn't write. I mean, if he, I'm sure he has yeah. a hand in the screenplays to some degree, but yeah, he's not a, you know, he's not a writer on his projects, but at the same time, he, he's very selective. Like he's choosing these things for a reason. Even with something as loose. I don't know, actually, when I say that out loud, because I think of like Panic Room, he's just like, I wanted to make the best B movie of all time. Like, that's literally his quote on Panic Room. <laughs> Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I don't really know what that is beyond, well, the Swedes really like me, so I guess I'll do them a, you know, a favor back. I don't, I don't know what the line was on, on that one. Is that just, that, it seems like such an obvious pick as far as, I guess they Dragon made a movie that feels like the, me. <laughs> Dragon Tattoo could go with the Seven Zodiac Mindhunter yeah, type the, thing. So I don't think of that as like he just stepped in. I, it feels I don't like think Al- of it as his too much, you know. It feels like Alice in Wonderland to me, where it's like you got the most obvious guy to do this thing, and it and it <laughs> right. feels and it feels like the very obvious pick that doesn't 
ultimately mean as much compared to some of his other movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember I powers as opposed to Tim Burton in Alice in Wonderland. I think Fincher is the top of his powers. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a better movie. I mean, for I think Burton is best I mean, with Alice in Wonderland. I default. I mean, I okay. I remember I got into a conversation. Um, I feel like sometime in the early two thousands, uh, when we're uh, probably right around when I met Yancey uh, with a, a friend of mine, when we were talking about what we think are auteurs versus just, well, I shouldn't say just, because it's not a bad thing, but filmmakers who have a style and are, are obviously really in, intelligent and sophisticated, but maybe that's what Yancey's saying with, you're not pointing out the themes. So at the time, the conversation was, my friend was like, he kind of felt that David Fincher was somebody who very much you could tell his movies by the sense of style, but his movies could be different subject matters as opposed to, Wes Anderson, who also has a certain style, but he seems very interested in kind of the same thing to a degree. Remember, this is 2000, so he hadn't gotten to Grand Budapest Hotel. So is that what you're saying? Is that kind of what you guys are saying? And I can kind of see that because it's true. I don't know if I would say a David Fincher movie, like a Scorsese movie, I'd be like, oh, he's kind of usually dealing with Catholic guilt. He's dealing with like redemption. Yeah, I don't know if I see he that. Have, the point is, he doesn't have to be in there. Are so many great directors from the first 60, 70 years of filmmaking who are great directors because they made great movies, not because they had this thematic thing that would dog them. Right. Michael Curtis, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so, I think I, if you're going to talk specifically about like themes in relation to auteur, no, I don't think there's a specific. I mean, you can draw some through lines, I'm sure. There's some obvious ones, but I mean, I. <laughs> Compared to someone like Burton or Wes Anderson, you can look at frames from those movies and be like, that's right. definitely that person. Right. But because so many people want to ape Fincher, it's hard to, I, if you, you'd be hard pressed sometimes to be like, wait, is that a Fincher movie? Like, that's not he's exactly e- a direct He's kind of easier to ape. I think the only person that uh, like comes close to like a Tim Burton, and you can tell the difference is, uh, uh, is it Barry Sonnefeld? He's kind of yeah, Barry Burton-esque. Yeah. Or, or Henry, um, Henry Selleck, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you can still tell it's not Burton, but there's a lot, like, Fincher's look was easily replicated. Sonnefeld, I think, like, Raimi, you could, like, like tie them together. Sonnefeld yeah. came from the, the, again, was a cinematographer, right? Came yeah, it's that, it's, they're in the Coens. Like, it's all that, that's all, that's their family thing, yeah. I know, like, I know what you're saying, though, of Fincher. Like, I understand, because the, because the work comes from various places. It's not coming from like, you know. It's a Kubrickian thing almost to just want to do perfect movies that aren't one and one of each, you know. Sure. Yeah. Because he's, I like, I wouldn't necessarily call either of them journeyman filmmakers, but they certainly like. They're masters. They, they certainly, yeah, they've, they've explored, they've explored different genres to a point. Actually, that's interesting because, I mean, I guess in a way the Coen brothers are kind of like that. They, they have some projects like Serious Man that I feel are very specific to probably their own upbringing and everything. But you're right. They, their movies are also insanely well-made, but I don't necessarily know if I see themes. And well, stuff. they, well, they, I mean, they tend to have a theme of a, a common person drug in, like it's a Hitchcock oh, thing true. where the common person drug yeah, into a Their, their theme is idiots. That's the easiest way to put it. Their theme <laughs> is idiots. idiots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like their, and theirs is, their pattern is so easy because it's one for us one for the studio like that's, that's very right, much yeah. what they do <laughs> and we win both ways it's yeah awesome. it's not like it's not a you know <laughs> true grit's not like terrible by any means whatsoever <laughs> like it's it does the and job also, i would also say that like i um thinking of this era i feel like david fincher and steven soderbergh are both filmmaker and there's probably more people but 
those are the two I'm thinking of right now, who had very rich, like, uh, color or gradient schemes in their 90s work, and then they very comfortably moved into digital. Like, when I think of Steven Soderbergh, his stuff really starts to take, starts to take on a new life when you move to digital filmmaking. And the same thing <laughs> Finch, Finch, or Soderbergh needed a help because full frontal is awful but i mean the, the, the <laughs> like his, his his push towards that like yeah he's 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 bubble is just alive with cinema he's happier but he's i mean the iphone stuff is he's a lot more comfortable yeah. with that now than when he was first switching to di- like he didn't like he wasn't rodriguez or I guess Lucas to some degree, as far as like using digital cameras, being like, "This is the way," right here. Like it was no, more like Rodriguez was the first guy that I saw. Okay, he knows what he's doing with digital cameras. Yeah, where it didn't feel like I was being cheated because they didn't shoot on film. Yeah, like what Zodiac was the first to shoot on red, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and, it, and, it wanna... looks, and it looks wonderful. <laughs> I mean, Pete's right then to compare Soderbergh. He's right because that that's the same kind of thing. Of it's a filmmaker who was a great filmmaker who was driven more by the filmmaking challenge than right. thematic you know catholic guilt or whatever it is we think of with scorsese or somebody um i guess to that um yeah that's interesting the um to talk about the like directly about the movie because <laughs> we're talking uh, nothing about what it's like. this is not a scene specific commentary <laughs> which we don't tend to do but to address what's going on the thing i i there's so much like careful pacing in this as far as what we're ramping up to because we've only what we've seen a couple of sins so far we've seen what gluttony mm-hmm. and greed maybe yeah, yeah they agreed a lot of time on the first two murders mm-hmm. and then they go through right. the next three pretty qu- in succession mm-hmm. and even when I was you know when I saw this when I was 15 I was very impressed at how it's you know there's almost no action there's almost no violence. Yeah, the biggest it's, scene is the big chase scene in the middle, yeah, and that's there's a it. Chase like scene every, in the middle, and which is that's a, a lot of consequence. A lot this of movie a drama. It is you know a straight character play with a little bit of police procedural, but and again, you have scenes where characters are in a library doing research, that's, or you know, it's it's. I remember even as a kid being some you know a little surprised by how successful the film was because on paper, it's not a particularly exciting movie. Especially for people that you know go to the movies for stereotypical popcorny reasons, and right. yes, I think to a certain extent, like the Sixth Sense, it got an extra boost by virtue of the ending. I think that was what a lot of people were talking about or not talking about coming out of the picture over opening weekend. This part's but hilarious. I think, <laughs> I, I, want, I, want, I wanted to get to this because it's, right. these are two of my favorite scenes of this movie because of how ordinary they are. One is Morgan yes. Freeman doing very Morgan Freeman-like things, studying dutifully while Sam, the bus driver from Speed, puts on classical music in the background for him to listen to in the library. And then the, the, ju- the juxtaposition of Brad Pitt like trying to cram notes in his car. <laughs> he, gets some, he gets the Cliff Notes books. And, he th- and I like how he thanks the officer. He's like, good, good work, officer. Like, what? Is- <laughs> I mean, he gives you a package. <laughs> it's just it's it's good character stuff as far as establishing what this like what these two are uh like how they're acting in their profession well what's what's what stands out you know then and probably more so now is that brad some uh, brad pitt's character is not stupid in any way shape or form but he's not like movie smart as when you think of yeah. conventional movie cops he's, he's headstrong he is a regular guy that you know, frankly has some politically incorrect opinions about certain things in the world. And conversely, you know, Somerset, it's kind of a moral scold. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But again, this is an example of a movie where you know the characters are allowed to be as they are because that's what the story is. Um, and they want to be good at their jobs. Like that's a big yeah, thing. exactly you know, that helps too. And um, and there's not like there's not conflict between these two guys. Like you know they have an awkward first meeting, but after that they're just you know for a movie about you know, two cops meeting each other for the first time. It's, you know, it's not lethal weapon. Like it's, there's no no, friction here. It's professionals. I will say that. And I don't know. I'm assuming this is probably more of a, how Kevin, Andrew Kevin Walker's script was, and then how they decided to storyboard it in execution. But like typically in some kind of cop buddy cop movie, we pretty much know who the villain is. And then, you know, we lethal weapon or whatever we, have the two, the the straight one and the wild card, and then they have to chase this bad guy. And it's interesting in this, it by the end, it is kind of like a three-person movie. But mm-hmm. through most of this movie, John Doe is only, as I recall, John Doe is the credits, right? That's all him. That's all his work. But we're not seeing Kevin Spacey or something. Yeah, because he was... He was we, the- we, he was completely unbilled in this movie. Beyond yeah, the, he asked to be, like, he asked yeah, to be. Yeah. There was yeah. no marketing of him. He right. was he was held back for surprise reasons because at that point, right, right on the borderline of being uh, of being a, a celebrity at this point. He yeah, he's he's key yeah. as what like outbreak the year before or whatever. Yeah. And like and, and usual suspects is this year. Outbreak yeah, ninety five. He had outbreak yeah. beginning of the year. Usual suspects in August slash September. And, no, August. And then this I saw this movie in the theater when you reveal Kevin Spacey in the, yeah. in the end. There were gasps in the theater. Because I guarantee there were people thinking it's Kaiser Soze from The Usual Suspect. <laughs> right. The movie and, uh, had been sort of, no, it had been a slow burn hit in the previous sort of quarter. Mm-hmm. And I think he had finally sunk in and that had become a sort of water cooler movie. And so there were yes. some people who gasped at Kevin Spacey like it was stunt. You know, people don't know the movies take a while to make. So yeah, right. it's that, yeah. Because right. of I, it I works in it a was, way it didn't when it was shot. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was very smart in that I, well, Many g- general moviegoers probably had no idea who he was. And frankly, it doesn't matter if you know who he is or not. I would almost guarantee that anyone that saw The Usual Suspects in the theater also saw Seven pretty quickly into its theatrical release. Probably the same demo, yeah. Yeah. And it's I mean, it, but it, it works, rega- like, even regardless of him being a, you know, a, a yeah. recognizable star. It's that? just the, by the time you get to that point in the movie, it doesn't really matter who it is. I mean, it matters yeah. to a point as far as like, well, I recognize this face, but as far as, I've been sitting here knowing that this guy is out there. He's almost killed Brad Pitt at one point. What's going to happen? Is it going to be a fucking demon of wings? Like what? It, and it's just this guy. <laughs> well, it's at some point, we pr- it's that any other movie like this before this, there would have been scenes, first person scenes of the killer going out, killing people. There would have been yeah. a presence, mm-hmm. the presence yes. of the killer would have been suggested. We have no idea who he is until that scene in the chase where we get an outline of a figure. It could be anybody any unhappy city dweller and i think that's the real stroke of genius here is we're not cutting away like you would have it in literally any other movie in this genre even science of the lambs cuts away you would have yeah, we're, enjoy- we're enjoying our heroes rather than yes and, so, and the thing is we forget what it's like to watch this for the first time where we might be like maybe that arlie ermy is involved well, or like there's a lot of there's a lot freeman, of different i don't buy but they want you to think it's morgan freeman that's doing it because he the yeah. first thing with the metronome and Oh, that's true. You're right. I forgot about all that. Yeah. I can't say like I ever had a red herring thought when watching this movie for the first. I mean, granted. No, neither did I. But it, but, I can't but, remember. But I, but I, but I, I can see where that comes from. There. But I, I mean, at the same, yeah. also like 
not playing an age card here, but like you get used to seeing, I'd imagine like various slasher movies or whatnot, since this movie toes the line between being a thriller drama and a horror film where you, you know, you have villain characters that are wearing a mask or whatnot, right? This is, it's a psychological drama with horror elements. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a relationship drama about work. Um, But like you, there is a mystery aspect to it. It's just, you don't necessarily know if there is a mystery to be uncovered. You don't know if there's some surprise cast member or if there's just one of the people you've already, it it doesn't, it doesn't follow the law of economy of characters, right? Because it's not like, well, there's only, there's only Richard Roundtree and Arlie Ermey. So who can it be? It's instead, it's like, by the way, here's this other guy that you've never seen before. I think by virtue of the pacing and the emphasis on character, the film makes it very apparent very quickly that it's about the journey and not the destination. So you're not necessarily spending your time trying to play guess who or what, you know, figuring out who it is and why. Yeah. Um, and, by the rebel, it's going to be the next scene is going to be this. And that's going to be this. It's, or we're going to get a little more. Yeah. We might. And you know what? The thing is, this thing has such a big, like, this is such a roller coaster that man, when it goes, like it better finish this ride really good. And it, it does. But I mean, normally I'd just be like, all right, the ride was good, but this movie like builds itself up till that, ending well, sense in the pity your stomach that this is there's a doomy sense that it's not going to end up too well, bad well, well, like Morgan, Morgan it Freeman even, against Morgan, what you think Morgan, like, Freeman, Morgan Freeman even says it out loud he says this is not yes. going to end well <laughs> like right <laughs> this is uh hold on this scene this scene right here this is the last time everybody's happy in a scene right here because they're yeah. all they're all yeah. laughing yeah. about yeah. the shaking yeah. room the brightness and sunshine in the world Bruno Paltrow was going to end up with her head in the box Right. Yeah. So this world you would ever want to see in real life is Gwyneth Paltrow, and she's dead at the end. The fact <laughs> that she does this movie, Pitt fights for that ending, and Fincher like, and Pitt fight for this. Thing. I think one of the smartest things yeah. in the script is to build her relationship with Morgan Freeman in other scenes. Yeah, yeah, they could have just left her, could have left her at home. Same effect, but it's even deeper now when you add that was relationship. That, was that added? I forget. Was that like a scene where it's like we need know. more of this? Like because um, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if in plot wise as, you know, him knowing that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, you're right. It's, it's one of the reasons why it's my favorite scene in the film is, is it's just about character. And I, it's just I, about a character that didn't necessarily need more development, but mm-hmm. it makes the movie better that she gets it. When you uh, see a good side of Freeman that he's like, yes. he wishes Brad Pitt could fast forward to where he's at in his career because he's making a lot of mistakes in his personal life and his professional yes. life that he's been through and just has to experience whereas morgan freeman's tired and you know doesn't have the time to sit and watch him figure it out that's why freeman's so good here too and the movie's framing around him because you don't you don't learn much about somerset as a person but you Mm -hmm. you get it it's so much is implied you can tell he's probably divorced He, he might have a kid somewhere he's probably he's handled a variety of cases He's rubbed up against the brass mm-hmm. every now and then because of the ways he thinks about things. Like he's experienced at the same time. He's, it seems like he's not necessarily roguish, but he certainly has ideas that seem to stray mm-hmm. outside the box. Like all of that's like, you can just determine that because of what he's doing through, you know, visual tick or physical ticks or whatever. Well, in this scene, I mean, here you see Brad Pitt doesn't check out when he leaves work. He takes it all home with him. He takes all the gross and, and gruesome aspects of his job and brings them right home rather than, checking out yes. being with his wife and and it's just there's great like just not hitting you over the head type things it's subtle and it's stuff you pick up upon watching it multiple times or even the first but it's it's got those kind of psychological layers to every character that help keep the movie interesting as it gets older and you revisit it 
let's play the who else could have been cast in this movie game because there's a few things here. <laughs> um, Andrew Kevin Walker wrote uh, Somerset with William Hurt in mind. Huh. Okay. Hmm. That would have worked. Yeah, it would have worked. Yeah. Uh, Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman both turned down Somerset. Gene Hackman keeps turning down all the good serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> it was night moves and he's out. That was his thing. <laughs> um, what else? I think we all know, or I think I think it's pretty common knowledge. De- uh, De- Denzel Washington was the Brad Pitt role, and he turned it down, mm-hmm. and he considers that one of his biggest mistakes of his career. Well, he did Fallen, so yeah. he did. Yeah, he got he got back. And we, <laughs> He's and we like, did, well, that's my seven, and we yeah. did that commentary before we did seven because we're right. crazy yeah. people. <laughs> hey, time, time was on our side, exactly. And uh, this one I did not know until today. Sylvester Stallone was the Brad Pitt character at one point. He turned it down. No, no, oh, what? No, how how is, is he not this Somerset? Is, this is post um, the Specialist. <laughs> yeah, it's he's not young. I I mean, it just fell into his lap, I assume. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, oh, I don't know about this. Some serial killers? Uh, so. That's interesting. I feel like it would be more like you're going to say, oh, it could have been Keanu Reeves. It could have been Tom Cruise. Like, meanwhile, I no, I, I meanwhile have... at the New Line office, did, why did you send that to Stallone? <laughs> <laughs> he's on the phone. I, I, have, I have no doubt Reeves, likely Reeves among others, was it was probably passed by at least their agents. I would not be surprised by that whatsoever. Yeah, I can't imagine it wouldn't yeah. be. Reeves like, yeah. seems like the perfect guy that you would think, oh yeah, why why wouldn't he be in something like this at this point in his career? Christian Slater. Maybe. Yes, yeah. yeah. Slater's more like, a, they're like, well, there's another rung down, and then we get yeah, to Slater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, but Pitt's interested? Oh, get, the, get the Slater out of here. Why are we even talking about this? Wait, is River Phoenix dead by this point? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I need to read. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he would have. Um, well, I mean, this movie had to be being developed since at that point. Yeah. So, I mean, I, but yeah. what well, would be in Andrew, Andrew Kevin Walker's next uh, yeah. movie with the eight millimeter, which he's quite good in. Yes. But if, if Andrew Kevin Walker's writing this, yes, I'm sure he's looking at like young ingenues and whatever, younger younger stars or whatnot. He's like, let me look at the entire interview with the vampire cast and let's see which one stands out. And it wasn't Christian Slater. <laughs> And there's a lot of alternate different ways the ending played out too, which are so yes, almost every possible combination. Yeah, including there's a storyboarded well, like, one that's on the DVD, like in the Blu-ray. sewers or something with like a yeah. ritual thing. I I can't remember. Exactly. It was the it was the Thorn Cult. <laughs> yeah, <Michael> yeah. <laughs> it was a crossover. That's right. That's what awesome. didn't, didn't They're like it, Halloween's onto this. We got to change it. What, Peter? Didn't, um, Andrew Kevin Walker. I feel like. It sounds like Brandon. You know way more about this writer than I do. But I yep, I have a podcast called Walk Talk. You can listen all about. <laughs> I thought that when he wrote this script, he was basically trying to. Well, I don't know. He's conscious, of record, but he was basically trying to be kind of like a Paul Schrader, where he wrote this script where he was kind of isolated. He was living in a city and he wasn't kind of talking to people. Like that's the famous thing about Schrader with Taxi Driver, right? He realized he had gone weeks without speaking to a person. And that's how he came up with texture. I feel like he gave a similar interview about how he wrote seven. Did well, he might have self-consciously that? done it like Paul Schrader. Yeah, I feel like that's more. Tower Records when he wrote this. And Wait, what did you say, Auntie? He was working with Tower Records when he wrote this. Oh! Listen to a lot of Nine Inch Nails. It is meant to evoke, the John Doe character was vaguely meant to evoke that over that voiceover from Travis Bickle at the beginning of Taxi Driver. Someday a real rain's gonna come and wash the scum off these uh, things. Same sort of idea. Um, this f- movie feels less out of control than that movie does. It feels like it's made by sane people 
where Taxi Driver feels like they're kind of in crazy, you know? And it, I mean, it's speaking to a crazier time. I mean, it's, Made, it's, like, it's, it's starring the John Doe character, Taxi yeah, Driver. Yeah. You can, I, was, I was thinking about this earlier, but you can, it's interesting to trace like the through line of, of serial killer movies and the appeal they have to the audience, or you can go what back to like Night of the Hunter, then like Psycho, and then eventually mm-hmm. what uh, Texas, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And and a serial we, killer, Night of the Hunter, really? No, I know, but in terms of like in terms of like a thriller based around like some kind of like key killer figure and like how that yes. a shadow a of a guy doubt. who is a murderer, but it's not yeah, his job. Thirty one, right? But yeah, you go to M. Yeah, the beginning. Exactly. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. the start of it. But like, what, what's the eighties? What's the beyond the slasher film? Manhunter. 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 There we go. Manhunter. Perfect. To Thomas Harris. So then you get, and then you get the natural. You get the Silence of the Lambs. Then you get the, the idea of a serial killer didn't come around until seventies. Until the until David Fincher's uh, Mindhunter. was like a big deal at the time because most people didn't know anything about that kind of mindset you know i mean the mansons were coming in and then that's you know starts putting it more into the the conscience part of the conscience of things i yeah i should have used the term serial killer but in terms of like what scott said a man, a man that's killing that's that's out there it's doing you know acting in some kind Not of capacity a gangster or a criminal or, exactly or yes and how that and how that seems to align and how that seems to align with what audiences seem to want to see among other things on screen it seems like there's various evolutions of that kind of movie that kind of you can kind of draw a thread through as far as the ones that leave a lasting impact that lead to a lot of imitators coming out of it at the, at the same time um and I also think, I mean, you know, when you look at this film and this and shit's freaky, by the way. I'm sorry, but yes. like, I mean, oh, no, it's, it's cool. The the stuff here going on, like, we've talked over the gluttony and the other stuff. The idea of like he took his time to put like fingerprints in a very specific way on a wall—that's weird. <laughs> like, that's that's something. <laughs> um, but no, the, the the serial killer dramas that have stood out over the years are ones that have very compelling. Uh, Cops, police officers, heroes, you know, Clarice Starling, uh, these two guys. Even, you know, something like Criminal Minds, you know, that show ran for 15 years because of people like the heroes in that show. It wasn't because they necessarily enjoyed watching the scenes of women in cages or whatever. Uh, That show. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Wait, what? Where's the Nighthawks sequel? Where's Stallone? That one, that? unfortunately, didn't do. Well, he wasn't a serial killer. He was a terrorist. For no, but he's the cop. I mean, well, okay, fine. He's not yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. still a, it's a, it's a uh, horror-tinged movie. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yes, and again, I very much like Nighthawks. Don't get me wrong. Me um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this, to a certain extent, these kind of films didn't become super successful until Silence of the Lambs. You know, Manhunter made like six bucks. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, that's Fox, a movie yeah. that, <laughs> unless you were a hardcore... Uh, 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 Michael Mann fan, yeah. you hadn't heard of it until NBC heard it on TV saying, you know, you love Silence of the Lambs. Now see where it all began. Oh, yeah, no, people, yeah. None of the same actors. Yeah, pe- people still were like, um, Brian Cox, he wasn't a yeah. director. Like, that's not a yeah. like, that's the general reaction. He seems more like a real doctor. That's interesting. Um, okay. But, um, but in terms of, you know, what you were talking about earlier about, you know, who could have been, would have been, might have been cast in this, whether it's his best performance, I would argue this is certainly the definitive Morgan Freeman performance oh, in terms sure. of what you yeah. think of when you think of him as a movie star. And he even has just a little bit of the warmth and, you know, decency and, and openness that makes him more than just, you know, the stern, you know, very serious gravitas man. 
That's he a, sometimes gets stereotyped as. That's a very good um, point. Yeah, you would like if you're trying to pinpoint what Morgan Freeman is as an actor. Yeah. This is like this is the model that you're like kind of getting out of there. Yeah. I mean, also you, oh. know, you get you get Morgan Freeman in two. Even though I feel like fans of the show know I do not love Shawshank Redemption, but isn't Shawshank Redemption also '95? 94, it's a year before. 94. So basically within a, oh, a year, whatever, Morgan Freeman is in two pretty big iconic roles for him, and it's shot, one's Darius Kanji. Isn't Roger Deakin Shawshank? So it's like yes. these, yeah, so very much these, what we think of as the iconic Morgan, again, I'm not a big Shawshank guy. but That's a, that's a great, that's a great, tra- that transition right there where they're just on the couch together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, a, that's a fun one. Oh, what, what I, but, but, I mean, Peter, 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 speaking okay. of that, I mean, yeah, I mean, this movie is a certain physical presentation of what you get Morgan Freeman. Shawshank is the narrating oratory um, yes. Morgan Freeman that, you know, he, no. the automatic gravitas because he's speaking in front of your movie type of thing. Yeah, when, right. when people make fun of, when they pretend to narrate like Morgan Freeman, they're doing bits from Shawshank. Um, and yeah, I, I think this is, one of his, if not his very best star performance. Um, and I think part of the reason why this is a definitive portrait is that the film was so successful that he did get a lot of roles somewhat in the sandbox for the next several years. Uh, you know, Kiss the Girls, Long Game of Spider, yeah. uh, uh, the one with Anthony Judd. Uh, was, he, was he just double cause Jeopardy, or was that... Jeopardy, the other one. Um... Um, God, the what's Bone Collector or something? No, not Bone, that's Denzel. No, that's, that's, yeah. Twisted? Um, is he Twisted? I think he is. No, that's, no, that's, that's Sam Jackson. Jackson. Double Jeopardy? Actually, that is Ashley Jones. Double Jeopardy is Tommy oh, that's Tommy Jones. Oh, Tommy. <laughs> this is fun. Um, it's whatever Ashley Judd's kidnapped in or like suffering from. There's like there's three like old stars that are in that movie with her. Exactly. This is the one where her husband gets accused of committing a massacre while overseas in a war many, many years prior to their marriage. Yada, yada, yada. Um, Rules of engagement. Rules of engagements. That's, that's Tommy Lee Jones, 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 Jones and Sam Jackson. Yeah. High crimes. Under there suspicion. it is. High crimes. High crimes. There we go. No, I um, wonder why we couldn't think of that very specific title. High crimes. <laughs> I think to a certain extent, I mean, yes, Kiss the Girls came about because of this movie, obviously, but it's a very different character. I think it's to his to their credit. Obviously, it's based on a prior source material. See, I, but, I watched Kiss the Girls not too long ago because it was streaming and I hadn't seen it in forever if I had at all. And the thing I don't like about Kiss the Girls, which I don't think is, which I don't think is a very good movie, is, the th- is that I don't believe Morgan Freeman as a guy who's making mistakes and, un- and not confident <laughs> in himself. It just, I can't buy it whatsoever. Like, I get that he's acting and you're well, sp- like, but it's like, that's not the, it's I not Morgan I enjoy Freeman. Like him more. I, I, I do enjoy a lot. Well, because you're a Michael Wincott fan for life, so yeah, you're gonna like a lot. No, of it's also that you know, even back then, that was a great stood car crash at the beginning of that one. Not about not being about a serial killer, not being about you know some sexual deviant, you know yada yada yada. It was actually kind of weird that it was pitting him against a very old school master criminal. Oh, sure. Um, I mean, again, Met, not, Metro you know, did that. Are what so. they are. <laughs> I like Metro, sort of. <laughs> just made Michael uh, Wincott movies. <laughs> uh, I like him. I like I, him as the bad guy. I was watching. Uh, um, I was watching Forty Two earlier today, and uh, jo- I forgot John C. McGinley's in there as the radio broadcaster. 
yeah. and it and it's the most un John C. McGinley role next to like identity, where he's playing like a, a really nervous father that has no rage in him whatsoever. Yeah. So watching this movie where he's like ultra macho John C. McGinley, the kind that would be like a sidekick in an Oliver Stone movie, and he's coming in charging with guns and shotguns, like good, yeah, all right, that's 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 my that's the John C. McGinley I know. Oh, he's John C. McGinley. Oh, the He's the right in front of us. Yeah, he's got he's shaved his head. He's got right a there. Uh, point point break. And yes. Yes, in point break, he's in Get Carter. He had this, you know, he Get was Carter? Is he in this play. <laughs> yeah, he gets his butt kicked in the elevator. Um no, but I'm, I'm, more, I'm more concerned with the idea of remembering get the Get Carter remake. That's that's what get, what's throwing me off here. <laughs> well, that's what you bring me on for. <laughs> um but McKinley had built up such a typecasting reputation for himself that Scrubs was a huge change of pace for him. I mean, it was, you know, yes, he was playing, you know, a very over-the-top, cocky, whatever character, but yes, and it was, if I recall, he made a point to say, look, I will do this, but I don't want to be the villain. You know, he had just just, uh, had a son who who has had Down syndrome, and he was very adamant of saying, I don't want to you know, I want to do something good, basically. Huge paraphrasing here. But, and, you know, that's one reason why that character was always on the side of the angels. Well, which yeah, I mean, it's, it's very a very different. A, it, it's a John C. McGinley character just with heart. That's the, that's the difference yeah. with that character. Yeah, yeah. The opening, the entrance to this um, room. This is, is oh Yeah, like, you don't know what's going to happen here when you get into a room where there's pine... <laughs> pine trees like all over is like what's this leading to you turn <laughs> off a sheet and it's like i still don't know what this is it's some kind of person i guess but wait, for, there's the, more. for the detractors of the genreizing and stuff it's like right here's like okay can we call it a horror movie now yeah can we <laughs> we just officially i've like, always considered this a horror movie i have too I mean, but you know those people on film twitter yeah, yeah. is this the first well, i think in a year with 10 best picture nominees that might have snuck in it is was that acclaimed yeah, yeah. Is, uh, is this the first time, obviously, like obviously pre like Saw and stuff, where the killer kills basically another bad person to like? Because that's the whole thing. Because this, I mean, this, you could argue. I mean, you could argue Taxi Driver is the guy that does that. Yeah. Oh, I, that's true. I think there's a certain preaching in yeah. this character that's similar to what John Doe would eventually become. Um, He's the I mean, Thanos I, of his time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and I'll be very curious to see, assuming the previews are misdirecting, that, you know, the Riddler's character in the new Batman movie, you know, and obviously that trailer feels very much at peace yeah, with a lot like Seven and or Saw, and you seem to have a, a Edward Nigma who is a serial killer who is, you know, preaching, for lack of a better word. Here and here is the best, <laughs> you know, the big jump scare of the movie. <laughs> He's alive. He's alive. (laughs) Oh boy, that's a look. I guess it's just insane. Um, Yeah, that moment, like, yeah, huge jump in the theaters. Well, it's a a great misdirect. And it feels so like they've built the movie up so far. It feels just like real (laughs) because there's also there's an absence of any kind of thing like that up to that point too. There's also very little music music in the conventional sense throughout this entire film, if I recall. Um, it, it plays it up in yeah yeah it's there's a lot of because because you i mean you talked about there's a lot of character driven scenes in here so it just yes. doesn't have time there's john doe there, go. there he is oh, yep. spoiler <laughs> i guess he's wearing With a wig hair. yeah yeah he's totally yeah. wearing a you wig. think he's wearing a wig or do you think he shaved his head before he went in to turn himself in 
That is a good question. You know, maybe it's know. like, hey, let me get ready for the rest of this movie. <laughs> <Shave my head. laughs> it's implied that he just cut off his fingerprints relatively recently. Yeah, so maybe he just cheered himself. <laughs> Yancey, did, did, were there any... Did, the question that, that Peter asked as far as um, killers killing for the righteous good, righteous reasons or whatever you want to call it. Well, they, are we counting know? the 70s vigilante movies? Because they're like the anti-heroes or whatever you want to call them. But like, Yancy, yeah. yeah, can you think of any like like ones where like the villain is someone specifically going after people like that? Oh, where like Scott's saying where he's preaching. I mean, this is the this is the the, the big one for that where the, where the villain is preaching at you, and that of course is a big thing that's that saw unfortunately developed much further, um, which I think is what we. Oh, did it. <laughs> I don't think before that. I don't think before that we. Ha- I think before that, if you had someone preaching, it would be like like Zodi, like or the Gemini, or whatever the killer's name is, and Dirty Harry, who's crazy and preaching some Charles Manson craziness. I don't. Well, that, yeah, uh, that's tapping into Charles Manson Zodiac stuff. I mean, so wait, it's like, this, yeah. movie us, this movie wants us yeah. to walk out hanging our heads over the fact that the seven deadly sins are being broken. It doesn't achieve that, as far as I'm concerned, but it goes for that. And Fincher extends the John Doe stuff to Tyler Durden later on in Fight Club, extending his preaching yes. about you know the world sure. around while doing horrible stuff. Yeah, but John Doe, John Doe is clearly designed to be cooler than Tyler Durden. Tyler Durden is comic. It's a little, you can read it, it's it's that reads as funnier. This feels at least the way Spacey plays it at the end. It feels like you know his voice cracks like. Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Mr. Smith goes to Washington when he's complaining about it. It's like, yeah, every weekend there's a seven deadly sins being broken in every corner. I think that's when the movie breaks a little bit and becomes a little too self-serious for its own good. Because I don't think that's a resonant... Uh, the seven, I, yeah. don't know, I don't know how seriously we're supposed to take him just because, yes, he has a quote-unquote good point, but you know, what does he do with... What, what is he revealed to have done in the next scene, which is... You know, heartlessly murder a completely innocent person and be a character that we very much like. Well, sure. So, but any validity that his point might have is then negated by his actions. The only you, reason to make this seven instead of the Ten Commandments is because seven is less. Like, I can't see any yeah. reason why not to make this. And there was a movie called Commandments, wasn't there? A little bit later with Aiden Quinn and Courtney Cox. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, uh, where it was, it's, it's even grislier than this movie. <laughs> I never even thought about watching that movie. But then there's the the deadliest movie of the ball, David Wayne's The Ten, just bodies everywhere. (laughs) Um, And this is, in my opinion, the best scene in the movie. And there's Cardinal Rule, you know. Where was Gwyneth Elter at this? She had done Emma, right? That was no, 92? that's after. She, this is one of her first things. Like she's, yeah. she's got like three or four parts here or there. But this is Better her. or worse, she was mostly famous for dating Brad Pitt at this point. And she'd been in that uh, Flesh and Bone movie where she sort of Flesh and Bone, and then there's she yes. was she was she's young Wendy and Hook. Uh, yes, yeah. right. There was a buzz over her that she was a strong actor. Well, right? she had famous parents. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah Blythe Danner and um, Bruce Paltrow. Bly- yeah, yeah, Blythe Danner. I don't think was ever taken as seriously as Paltrow from the beginning. Was I think that Flesh and Bone movie? She really was impressive. Um, this this um, certainly this is her coming out in terms of mainstream. Yeah, well, this like this is this and what like um the Emma and Emma, sliding doors, sliding doors, yeah, yeah, sliding doors. Then yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's mid nineties where she's becoming like yeah. a star, and then yeah, the the I guess it's peak is the is the end of the is like the end of the nineties and the two thousands. That's where like yeah, 
beyond like um, the Marvel stuff, obviously, or whatever, if you want to consider that. Even that was sort of like a not even like a comeback. But sort it of felt kind of like a comeback as far as like I haven't seen this person in a while, yeah, and, and she has great, and like she had, like that whole cast has great chemistry. That's a huge part of it, regardless yeah. of how much you like the movie. It's the cast chemistry really sells it. And what what made Iron Man, you know, regardless of what it would become, what made Iron Man stand out in two thousand eight was that it was a comic book superhero movie with grown ups in it. Grown ups yeah, doing yeah, grown ups doing pitter patter. Yeah, yeah, doing grown up stuff. You had you know Jeff Bridges and and who I think was in his fifties, and Downey Jr. was I assume in his forties, uh, and even you know Gwyneth Paltrow, she was younger than them. She wasn't some you know twenty year old fresh off the you know beaten path actress. Downey and Jr. Terrence they, were veterans. they were veterans. As Rhodey, the the highest paid actor of Iron Man. Oh yes, um, of course, of course. Downey uh, Jr. He only meditates now, so he is ageless. He just uh, he just is. <laughs> That's his, that's his whole thing these days. Uh, this bar by this or this restaurant, this is like the LA movie restaurant, right? Everybody goes to this restaurant. <laughs> this, this is where this is where um, they meet in Training Day. This exa- like maybe this exact booth. I mean, honestly, it looks. Let's talk about the the, the thing about this the the the, the unnate. Is is there a city in the world that rains this much where you can drive forty five minutes to what looks like? farmland at the end i think that's you could do that no you could do that in washington if you want to go seattle there's a lot of empty Mm -hmm. seattle's not that big and then you could get out but it'd be mountainous or more dirt looking like a different a different uh uh, the weather is entirely different for the last it's like it well they leave they leave the city i mean that's the thing (laughs) like that's intentionally it doesn't ring true as any single city well, that's what I was saying earlier. It's an, it's ambiguous on person. It's 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 mm-hmm. heightened. It's stylized. It's not trying to represent something specific. Uh, it, it's it's like you can't pinpoint a time yeah. and place because it feels like this, but it shows that, and it's kind of kind of like Rob Zombie does that with his films a lot, where it's just indeterminate. Like it look, oh, it's seventies, but oh, there's a cell phone, or the, you know, it's just kind of. All well, honestly, like romantic comedies do that a lot as far as they don't exist in a specific world. They exist in a place where you can always have rents and you can play these places and be alone and have no job, but still like manage to, you know, have a lot of drama in your life. That's more concerning. Like, it's the same kind of thing. Sleepless <laughs> in Seattle has the Empire State Building and Seattle. Yeah. That, that, that specific movie does that. Yes. As <laughs> a key romantic comedy. Yeah, this wouldn't the ending wouldn't have nearly the same without the 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 sweetness of the two of them in this scene. There would be no no, it would be nauseous at the end. With the well, box. yeah, I mean, it, it, so it, it works for plot reason, obviously. But I mean, in true noir fashion, the the yeah. darkest thing to happen in the movie is happening as the sun is finally coming up and right. the rain is settling. <laughs> Is, yeah, is the only scene that takes place in the day, if I recall. We'll talk about yeah. the ending more when we get there, but I mean, there are some great lines that kind of build into like what that's supposed to be. As far as like, I don't know what's going to happen right now, but we're going to be ready for it. Like that's it, it. It sets it up quite well as far as getting to that point, from a, at least from like a visual and thematic perspective, regardless of how effective mm-hmm. it is in accomplishing it on a narrative point of view. Um, <laughs> what else? Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> um, I missed that Yoda. I love his Yoda line. Is that I do like the Yoda line. Yeah, Yoda line's great. Yeah. Well, it's just, like this is all a lot of Brad Pitt frustration at this point. As far as like, what we're, we're getting nowhere. Like, what are you doing? 
somehow Stallone playing this part would not have the same. <laughs> no, like um, I don't see that. Uh, I don't. Well, it's Stallone, Stallone's got a Stallone's got a huge ego. Like he wouldn't allow would stuff to happen. Stallone version. There would have been no partner. <laughs> He'd be making jokes that aren't funny. What like, are we doing over here? The hunk of chunka? He's sitting around his grandma's underpants smearing peanut butter on himself. He's 29 <laughs> in 1995. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's probably about what, how old Morgan Freeman was back then. Um, now, again, you know, 1970s Stallone? Early 80s? Nighthawk Stallone. Nighthawk Stallone, absolutely. Yeah. He would probably be very good in this. There'd be no that's seven funny. without Nighthawks, let me tell you right now. <laughs> Uh, it is the same genre of urban thriller bordering very much on horror movie. Yeah. Uh, comparatively, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it certainly was unique for its day in terms of its focus on international terrorism and the idea of a criminal who doesn't do it for money. You know, I don't want to quote the Dark Knight here, but you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> right. He doesn't do it for money or power, blah, 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 blah. Um, but... Val Kilmer turned down John Doe. Why? This was, this Why would was, any working actor is, turn down a part like this? This is diva Val Kilmer, though, in the 90s. That's true. This yeah. is, and he yeah, might have also worked. just... He might have also been like, uh, well, I can do this supporting role or it could be Batman. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. We don't know what else he was doing. Though, by any chance, or was that just not even... Sorry? It must have run past Kiefer Sutherland at some point. To be oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh god! I'm sure they both were. I'm sure Donald was being like, "You can be Somerset, right?" And he's like, "Oh, <laughs> my, son, my son is John Doe." The cruelest irony: the eighth sin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this movie was nominated for best editing. It lost mm-hmm. to all thirteen. It won three MTV Movie Awards. Can you identify what those movie awards? Yeah, were? right. I know uh, one of them was Best Picture. I don't know the others. Best, best Movie, yes. Yeah. Two more. I got to wait and see what the audience has loved. And then uh, the best game. Villain? Best Villain, yep. Yeah. And uh, Best Kiss. You're close. <laughs> <laughs> no, Chase scene? That wouldn't make sense. No. Best couple? I mean, best, like, part? Best, yeah, new, best, star, best new Star? Best close. Hero. It's Most, most Desirable couple. Male. Oh, oh, Morgan oh, Freeman yeah. got a movie yeah, award? Yeah, Morgan Freeman won most of the Iron Man. Look at Mark Boone Jr. He's yeah, looking pretty svelte. He's in Batman Begins, right? He's in, he's in a he's lot in, of Chris Nolan movies. He's Memento. He's, he's, the, he's the hotel manager. The Mandalorian. He and I were talking about yeah. this. or somebody, Some of us were talking the other day about this. It's sort of a cliche to say about him, but the truth about Brad Pitt really is that he always has been a character actor in that obviously mm-hmm. handsome guy. Because like right from the beginning, it's Thumb and Louise and this and this and, and California, and the, California, true, true like, romance. I mean, like he, yeah, he's he's very much. He just he he got elevated, but yeah, his the parts that he is known for and that he was liked for are these random supporting character roles. Well, and he always discussed this period in his career from arguably Interview with the Vampire up until Troy. Maybe yeah, Troy. It's sort of the killing uh, Tristan, whatever that character's last name is. Uh, the, basically, overcoming the typecasting of Legend of the Fall. So that's why he would make movies like Seven and Twelve Monkeys and Seven Years in Tibet. He was um, also he was also considered difficult during this time too, because I mean, the movie Living in Oblivion. There's a character specifically that's oh, him, that's right. by played oh. by. 
um, James, uh, James the Gross, who was like the Brad Pitt that didn't take off. They kind of looked alike back in the eighties. The Johnny Swade, you were Johnny Swade. Yeah, too. yeah, and and then you know that character in Living in Oblivion is based off of experience working with Brad Pitt, and oh, it's quite hilarious um, and quite uh, ridiculous. But I'd also say that I feel like, um, yeah, I definitely think Pitt is 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 the weird like really handsome leading man who's better as a character actor. Having said that, you know, though, going back to Scott's uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards and then eventually Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. I think working with Tarantino, he, that actually, even if the part is smaller and Inglorious or whatever, that to me is the leading man, Brad Pitt, that I think we just somehow never saw until then because I don't think he, I don't think he works in Joe Black. Look at 12, Twelve Monkeys. He was like, he's, not the, he's, not the, he's not the leading man in that not movie. The, uh, yeah, okay. right, yeah. So, like, Glorious is because he gets to be weird. That's the thing. Yeah. He gets to be yeah. weird in that movie. <laughs> like it's, it's I, I'm I'm using a generic Troy, term, but he's he's a weird. He starts guy. doing around the time of Troy, which is 2004. He starts doing more conventional leading man star vehicles again for a while. Uh, some but of them, gets, some of them, you know, he, he gets to uh, pick them better. That's the thing. Yes. Like he, he's so you start seeing Mr. Mrs. Smith, um, you know, Troy and along with, you know, offbeat stuff like burn after reading. Um, oh, he's, oh yeah. Burn after reading. He's great. He was never anything but a good actor. Like he had to overcome yeah. being handsome, but he was always a good actor. You know, but he's improved as he's gone along too. You can yeah, watch, he's, he's kind of like a a Channing Tatum where it's like, yeah, he's uh, actually now he's good. You know, like where you can watch them through their films improve. I want. He also okay. came about. Sorry, go ahead, Peter. I was just going to say, I I agree with Nancy that I think I think Pitt always could be good, but unlike I would. Oh, here he comes. Unlike I would say, like <laughs> this Tom freaked Green. me out when I was. Like, you know, the, you know the classic thing of Tom Cruise always given like 150 percent in general. I feel like Interview with the Vampire. Tom Cruise is having a ball, and I don't feel like Brad Pitt's that into it. And you I love you are on movie. that commentary. We don't need to recap that right now. <laughs> 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 huh. Let's he's talk, an energy let's, sucking let's, vampire. Let's Interview with the Vampire. He's doing a good job considering his miscasting his major yeah, miscasting. I, I yeah, agree, but we, t- we talked all about that we do not need to repeat that let's talk about this now this is case- the commentary listeners have listened to all the commentaries now yes they, have, they, they will collect them and they will find them <laughs> you can hear this exact same argument on the interview with the vampire commentary <laughs> let's talk about this scene because we'll, we'll pause we'll get back to pick because yeah, this is the one about. action scene in the movie but this chase scene is awesome, like because it's oh yeah, it's a great it's a, it, chase scene. Because it's not a it's not a I'm gonna go down every right corridor and know exactly where he is and follow him. It's a I have no idea where the fuck this guy is, and I have to go yeah. every every different direction before I go the right way. And it's and so, even even the way they hold the gun was more realistic than what we were used to in a lot of cop films. Yeah. Just the way he's Very looking, the awkward. fact that this movie switches to like really rapid handheld all of a yeah, sudden. Yeah. yeah. And answers the age-old question, who would win in a fight, Brad Pitt or Kevin Spacey? Exactly, yeah. We've been asking that for years at this point. Ever, ever you since were thrilled by Slice Lone versus John Lithgow. Ever since See No Evil, Hear No Evil, it's like, who could beat this man? I think John Lithgow would have been a good John Doe. Huh. It'd be the obvious John Doe. Yeah, yeah, he's played that. Yeah. Yeah. If he walked in, he'd be like, of course. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true, Yeah. You know, that's a good point, Aaron. I didn't think of that. This is very well staged for it needs to feel of the moment. 
it, it needs to feel like he doesn't know his way around this place. Like, you're right. Yes. It's, well, it's really yeah. dangerous. It I'm, just, I'm stealing this line from the, the actual commentary where David Fincher says, like, oh. I didn't want to make a generic chase scene. I wanted to make one where he's confused always and doesn't know where to go. Well, it has the same, it has the same, it has the, geog- the, 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 the sense of place and geography of a great chase scene, like a chase scene in Bullet, where you get a sense of where he's going and where the other guy's been, and he's about to be there where the other guy just was. And, and it's, it's, it's built with a sense of, of, of you, you can follow the action clearly, you know? Yeah, very much so, which is impressive because of this labyrinthine uh, apartment complex. We don't, know, we don't know what this place is, but like the, it doesn't, I don't feel lost despite the character being lost trying to find the other character, which is, it's incredibly impressive. Also, everything looks painful in this. Everybody looks like they're getting hurt. They're going over. through glass, they're jumping off of things. Everybody looks like they have sprained ankles and cuts all over them after the end of this chase scene. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, Pitt keeps his weapon down. As yeah, well. he acts like a cop. Well, <laughs> or a yeah. cop like a cop should. <laughs> as as Even the way they, they hold their flashlights in a more realistic way than we usually see. Yeah. I love um, that shot of the of John Doe running with the silhouette. That's great. That that's yeah. yeah. like, he's like limp he's limp running. He's limp running. Well he leaps over the banister. That's awesome too. Like that's he's like the shadow. <laughs> that's, yeah, high yeah. The, high theatrics and Yancey, what were you saying? Sorry. This movie's this movie's been effect, so effectively stylized in terms of the deep shadow that you get to this scene where you can have a character completely in silhouette and it doesn't feel like it's done. It feels like yeah, the movie has come to this sort of orgiastic point, and, and I, I buy that we can only see this. Not only that, but he's a guy with a hat, like a guy in a fifties movie and a coat. Right. Well, this hotel looks kind of reminds me of Blade Runner, though. The hell yeah. you know, the Blade Runner. I would be surprised that the Bradbury Building's right around here somewhere. Honestly. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like it, it's very reminiscent of that, and you could. It's probably. I, I think it was an influence on. Oh, for I mean, Blade Runner. It was for you know, movie, yeah. <laughs> everything we talk about seems to be influenced by Blade right. <laughs> Deep Rising is one of those influenced by Blade Runner. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So, do you think that at this point, because we know that John Doe has a plan, um, when he shoots at Brad Pitt? You know, he looks out the window and he shoots. Is he trying to make sure he doesn't hit him? He's just trying to because his plan doesn't work if he doesn't get to do his his big thing at the end. Well, his, well I mean, I'd like to think it's a little bit it's a little bit fluid. Like he doesn't maybe know exactly yeah. what he's going to do with those last two sins. But like between the way they act when they have the photographer going after him, but when he's the photographer, and the way this scene plays out, that's when he gets the idea of okay, I'm going to delve into since they're investigating me. Let me see what I can do with this. That, that said, well, that said, when he shoots, at, when he shoots at them and when he shoots at him, I don't necessarily think he's trying to kill him. I think he's just trying to be like, you know, stay. I'm going to buy time. Stay away from me. Do this. Well, this is the the what sets into motion the the demise of Gwyneth Paltrow. You invaded my territory, investigating me. Now I'm going to do the same. Uh-huh. Thing. The, pho- the phone call that he gives after the scene is my one of my other favorite scenes. This there's a lot of favorite scenes in this movie, guys. But like the oh, phone, the, di- the very he has very specific word choices that I really. When he says like I hurt one of you, things like that that are very just key to how he's how his mind's going. Mm-hmm. Great shot right here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. The and the cam this the gun into the camera shot. Oh my gosh, it's good stuff. I remember right there. Playing. Yeah. Criterion put this out in a big hundred and twenty five dollar laserdisc box set. At the time, during an exclusive silver nitrate print, whatever that meant. I have it. Beautiful laser disc. Yeah. There was a good DVD packaging on this. Was well, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk about the home media in a second because there's a plenty to go with that. That that shot though with um, Somerset yelling Mills and him just like he's he has a gun next to him and he's saying no as if like I don't want to die. Also, don't hurt my friend Somerset. Like there's just a lot there. <laughs> All of this is really cool. 
And someone's burning trash. That... From, a, from a sort of larger sociopolitical movie history point of view, usually a movie that's a downer is not a hit. For a lot of people, if the ending is bad, it's sad, then it's a bad movie. If the ending's happy, it's a good movie. Um, this movie being able to be a big hit. This changed things. People, this does change yes. things. Yeah. wanted to see something a little more cynical. Yeah. Well, I think to a certain extent, it's the same way that most of the classic romances are doomed romances. I think if you make a movie like this that earns its ending and it makes it through the test screening process, which has its own issues, I think audiences will usually embrace it. Um, I think the idea, you know, I, I, yes, it's a, it's a sad ending, but it's a, you know, it's a joltingly shocking ending. And I think that is different than, you know, oh, you know, everything's miserable, everybody lost, blah, blah, blah. They, I mean, they also settle in a place. Like, I know we've talked about already that there's multiple endings, but there, and we'll, we should save some of this. But I mean, I know there's yeah. like versions where, you know, you see, you know, he reveals the head, shoot him, and that's it. Movie end over. And yeah. like the adding the Morgan Freeman coda at the very, very end, the little narration he had, the Urban Ernest Hemingway quote he has, that was a concession they made that they all agreed upon. And I honestly think that's the best way they could have gone about it as far as where they leave the audience. Like, I think that's, I think that adds to why it's more of a success than it would be. If it just cut to credits after he shoots Kevin Spacey. Yeah. It's an ending. It's just, it's incredibly dramatic. Like it's incredibly sad having more, having, you know, the, the elder statesman still competently saying, I want to fight for this world. That leaves you with something that gives you like something to leave to, to walk out on. Cause it it shows that it wasn't all for nothing. Sure. At least Somerset has somewhat, come about that he's he's you know as you said he's willing to he's he's not given up anymore sure for you know, he's willing to fight for a shitty world is basically what the quote says. <laughs> that's what yeah he believes in the second part still very bleak you know? it is it's i'm not saying it's not bleak but i do think yeah. as far as a, a final impression that an audience member has that's more than cut to black everybody's yeah. dead well, uh, and, and that ending get the whole sense of the plan coming to fruition well, we can, we can talk more about that when we get there, because I mean, there's a lot to get into. Yeah. On that the ending is a big piece of what lets us step outside of the science of the lamb's shadow as well. Yes, the science of the lambs. Clear, clear, I mean, everything's. I mean, Hannibal Lecter gets away, but it's a ha 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 ending, and uh, our our little villain heroes free. And but uh, and it's, it's a conventionally triumphant but ending. Clarice <laughs> gets Buffalo Bill and and saves the woman from all, the all the characters and, you like get something good happen to them. Essentially. Yes. Right. No, yeah, it's 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 an earned triumphant ending. I um I have a question and I wanted to bring this up earlier when we were talking, obviously. The Mark the, with the Mark Boone Jr. character coming in as like is he like a government spook? Is that the thing or like just he just has uh, information. He's like an idea. Yeah, he's an my, off. I think he was a former spook. My my question is: Does that work in this? Like that? I've uh, that's like the one. No, I'm more content with one. I, I'm more content the, with the ending than Yancey is. So I, but I always look at that scene as like so. To get to the next plot point, we just have like a random guy come in to hand them the key. Like that's. Oh, the, I guess so. Yeah, well, it was yeah. always silly to me because it never made sense that it, and it, whatever. It's not a deal breaker that an obsessive like John Doe would get his books from the library instead of buying them. True. And again, it's, it's it's a silly ha ha. That's funny plot hole, not an actual oh no that hurts the movie issue. But that always stuck out as you know. Again, you think he would buy his books for posterity's sake? Well, even then, I mean, beyond the reasoning, it's just like we're stopping yeah. the movie now because we the way to break into the next plot point is 
a guy comes in and hands him a sheet of paper. That just seems weird to me, like this, as far as the right yeah. is concerned. I think it also shows that, that, that Somerset is willing to bend the law in a way that may not be so great. It shows that he's, you know, a little roguish. Sure. Which, again, that's, that's, to a certain extent, that's established by having a switchblade in the opening scene. Yeah, um, but like it, the the come up the the result of that is we can't go into this room right now because we need some reason yeah. to have it, and then it's like we'll just have a junkie just say a thing. It just it feels like I don't know, like shoe leather yeah. almost. Like it's just like you could have cut some of this and just make a second fighter yes. movie. I mean, even you know, for example, Knives Out. You know, the the film doesn't really need all the stuff with, with the car chase. You just needed them outside the house for the trailer, right? Which Lakeith Stanfield uh, even comments on saying that was the dumbest thing ever. <laughs> like that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, it, it, it is awkward compared to how disciplined the rest of this movie is, but it's whatever. I'm, I'm basically, I'm just trying to, I'm basically picking holes in one of my favorite movies. So no, no, like, and I, and I agree difference. with you. I've always agreed with you in terms of that because when I, when I first saw the movie, again, that was my one little. Eh, whatever. The only thing that would add to a scene like that is someone in the background going, things are worse than ever. <laughs> I gotta say, like, has, um, I feel like Silence of the Lands, when we, when we get to, you know, Buffalo Bill's uh, lair, which is that great moment where you see, I think, the moth. That's when, I think the moth hits something and that's when Clarice... He fly, it like, flies into like the mm-hmm. kitchen or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, this is the guy. You know, and then you go to the basement and you see like the Nazi quilts and everything. I feel like this is like the next level of, we're really <laughs> going to show you like serial killer. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, we're like, we're going to go, this is going to be so dark. And I mean, it's great though. Like, it's I a great the, apartment. A lot of space. Yeah, I love his journals. I love like all that stuff. It's all, like, well, but I don't know. Like, are there any other favorite serial killer layers that you can think of besides these two movies? Oh, serial killer oh. layers? Oh, man. Let me think about this for a Vincent second. Diofrio is was kind of goofy in the cell. In the cell? Yeah, that's yeah. a great one. Um, but it, what's always stood about Silence of the Lambs is that you have the two murderer characters, and in Buffalo Bill, you have one of the more realistic serial killer characters on film. I mean, he's as authentic as the real thing. And then you have Hannibal Lecter, who's the ultimate movie serial killer. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. The, the oh, family man. in Texas Chainsaw Massacre have that damn house. That's. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That house is great. This is, by the way, I know that we're talking, so we're not able to hear this, but this whole, when he reads from this journal about, isn't it like a subway train? I met a yeah. man on a train today and I threw up from his penality. <laughs> I, I threw up all, all of that. It, it's, like, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's the delivery Freeman has where he says, I, I, he's doing it right now, where he says, I threw it. I didn't even notice when I threw up all over him and the man was not amused. Like, it's just the way <laughs> he like, says it. And I couldn't stop laughing. Yeah, like, uh, I had great. Yeah. yeah. Which is on the, let's talk about the whole media now, because that's on, it's in like the DVD case of that, that like that exact passage mm-hmm. is in there. But like the, Yancey, you had the laser, the laser disc, right? It had some of the pages of the uh, of diary the as well, or the John Doe book, yeah. New Line seemed like, it seemed like because the production design was so intense on making composition books full of this nonsense, they're like, 
well, we got to keep using this. We got to get our money's worth out of it. So they put it in like every <laughs> right. form, every form of the home media release. Like the, cause that one happened in the DVD new line platinum series release was, was the composition book with the, mm-hmm. the, the hands and everything and the, yeah, the passages and all that stuff. And then like, I, now I have the Blu-ray and the, the Blu-ray is just a digibook. Well, it's a digibook, but it still tries to have like some of yeah, that, like it's still, like, it's a darker digibook than the other digibooks, right? So it's, <laughs> Can't wait for the 4K where it's like a hand or something. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's a box. What am I talking about? Where's that release? Where's the box edition? (laughs) The what's in the box edition? It's just a big cardboard box. It has like a, it has like a, like a, um, a DVR version of seven. They actually did some color timing changes with this when it came to uh, Blu-ray. I remember. Yes. I think they fussed with it every time it went, it got a, you know, the special had some toying with it as well. So, Doc, 4K would be the first time you'd actually be able to approximate what it looked like in the theater. Yeah, the true, true. Yeah. This is a really striking movie, and, and, and you can never go back again, but until we find out who John Doe is, the sort of presence of John Doe is really effectively creepy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. least suggested by all his junk, you know? Yeah. This does a, a great job of continuing to bring up the kind of... <sighs> that he has... Yeah, that... That it's not a more conventional story where there is, as you say, the law of a comedy of character and John Doe is one of our characters we've already met. It allows him to be truly creepy, you know? Because it's not somebody who could cover up their creepiness by acting like Morgan Freeman is acting, which is always the kind of weakness of these kind of movies, is that somehow the killer is able to appear sane in every scene he's got with the main character until he is found out to be the killer and then he And he's immediately unhinged. Right, (laughs) Right. you know. Saturday. 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 So uh, we were talking about Pitt. This is the first Fincher Pitt collaboration. They what did Fight Club and then they did the curious case of Benjamin Button. Benny Button. Benny Butts. World War Z2. Yeah, yeah. Well, before World War Z, the thing I wanted to see was their 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea remake that they wanted to do. Like that. I was into this idea. Like, like. Could be the Kirk Douglas? Sorry? Is Pitt going to be Kirk Douglas? I'm not sure what he'd be. Like, if he, they, they'd probably, you know, it was supposed to be Disney, so they'd probably want Brad Pitt to be their lead star of that movie. But at the same time, having him be, what, Nemo? Nemo uh, yeah. What's his name? Um, Nemo. No, the, the actor. Jim, uh, what'd you say? Oh, Mason. Mason, thank you. God, it's killing me. Um, that'd probably be the part he'd lobby for. I wouldn't be surprised, but. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I like their collaborations. I think they do a good job together. Yeah. I, I, I'd want to see more of them. I feel like we've been teased a lot and I keep getting disappointed. Yeah. Uh, they, yeah, it, it's weird how they have, you know, they work together a lot, but also a little. Um, but I mean, Pitt, oh, I mean, Pitt's career comes off of this movie, basically. This jolts him even bigger, I, I think, with, you know, taking him into different roles and seeing that, you know, he's willing to, Ugly up, and he was of a generation that followed Tom Cruise, and what Tom Cruise did almost from the get-go was make movies with as many interesting directors as he as would be willing yeah. to work with them, and you know that was you know he would make star vehicles with you know Oliver Stone, Martin mm-hmm. Scorsese, uh you know, et cetera, et cetera, Brian De Palma, um, yeah. and that was something that was emulated by Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, 
uh, uh, Ben Affleck to a certain extent, and people, DiCaprio obviously, um, where you became a movie star and you didn't just go and do action movies, which was, by today's standards, would be a comic book film. Mm -hmm. But you used your star power to get interesting movies made, and some of them were hits and some of them were not. But back then, they were cheap enough that you didn't bankrupt the studio with one of them. Um, Funny enough, Pitt's still not doing. I mean, yeah, still doing it. Uh, interesting thing, like uh, Andrew Kevin Walker, like the underground sex club thing, kind of goes right into eight millimeters. Like he's flirting with it here, and then tries to expand it as much as he can in his next script. He's probably a huge cruising fan. Cruising, yeah. Right you know what? You know, that's possibly is. an influence. Cruising is definitely. What are the, some of the movies that he uh, sort of ghost wrote? You, you mentioned that he had script doctored some stuff. I'm curious. No, he did. I don't think he's around for cruising, but he, I, there's some other oh, movies. Oh, for cruising, I know, but. Yeah, I, I remember reading something about like an interview with him and he was talking about all these scripts that had gone by him and he'd done little brush ups on and it was uh, some. Other, other Fincher movies, The Game and Panic yeah. Room, he, he talked, he dug through, uh, uh, Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everybody, we wrote some of X-Men. Everybody wrote X-Men, but he wrote X-Men as well. I stand by my draft. <laughs> you said frog oh. instead of toad, and you and Joss Whedon got in a huge fight about that. Could you imagine my, I mean, Doug Ray Scott saying that line I wrote? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but once once he went, I was out. I was out. I'm like, this is never going to be a hit without Doug Ray. Loyal to the end. Mm-hmm. He's got a chance to be Wolverine again, so I'm very happy. And, like, I mean, he was doing a lot of the – I mean, because they're all, like, dialogue guys, right? They're all just, like, make it funnier or make it, like, make it wittier. So it's, like, him and McCory yeah. and we and Whedon, they're all coming in mm-hmm. on X-Men and Spiderman and uh, the, the various Superman drafts that there were because that was trying to be made forever. So it's, like, that's that's the stuff they're working on, like, generally. It's just things that you either get made books? or don't get made. But, take a look at this? I was trying to think of serial killer layers. I can't like. There's not many layers I can think of. Like I got like psych. Like there's a lot of houses like Psycho, like the Bates Motel. But it's like uh, Freddy's in terms of, got the boiler room. Like like Silence of the Lambs is almost comical. Comical in terms of how much of a layer it actually is when you look at yeah. it. It's like he has a fucking well in his house that goes down. <laughs> he dug that thing, man. Was, and then he bricked it and. I guess you built the house over it. How does that work? How do you have a well in your house like that? <laughs> you do it Dr. Home style, and you have lots of different people do small parts of it, so nobody knows what they're making. Oh, like H.H. Uh, Holmes, yeah. Um, this scene, while very good, is probably the closest the movie gets to underlining it, its moral with a yellow highlighter, um, in which, you know, basically... Morgan Freeman's character comes out and says, you know, the world is rotten, blah, 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 and eventually you'll see it too. Um, it is, but I think that because you get... because no, you it's fine. It yeah. I think it works. Yes. And I like the fact that they're actually having a conversation and a difference of opinion. That's something that you don't always see in movies in general. Um... You know, they're not necessarily having a conversation about the plot, per se. Um, the other thing I want to point out is we just passed the, the, the sex club scene or whatever, in which, once again, we have un- just unfathomably horrific scene of violence that's entirely suggested. We see none of it, other than a picture of the 
device. Murder dildo, whatever it is. Um, Leland Norris. Yeah, Leland Norris. I think he 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 like he got himself like really worked up so he could like play that character, right? Like he did like something like either stayed up all night or like just did something like really intense to kind of get him into a yeah. The panic he like took, you know, made himself like hyperventilate that kind of thing just to get into the state of mind. Offer him an alien resurrection where he has to be worrying he's going to be giving birth to an alien the whole time. <laughs> my my favorite thing about Leland Orser is that is is Cronenberg decided to name the characters Leland and Orser in that movie. That's just funny to me. <laughs> in History of Violence, the two killer characters, they're named Leland and Orser. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's just like, it's so random to me, but he's like... He knows him. <laughs> now, is this... A, now, what is, is, I'm trying to think of other movies that have this structure where it's a, an older guy and a younger guy, and the younger guy learns a pretty rough lesson and is basically dead, but not dead, but finished by the end of the movie. Usually it's the older training guy. Day. Training, yeah, training day. Is the I mean, day, yeah. I, you know, the first time I saw that, I was like, does he go to jail in the morning? Because there's a lot of bad stuff with his name on it. There's a lot more that's like the reversal, where it's like the mentor yeah. becomes the villain. Usually yes. the mentor gets like, like the recruit or something like that. Yes, yes. Finding Forrester. <laughs> yeah. Every, every, every superhero movie where it turns out the person training them was actually the villain all along. Right. Iron it's Man, funny. Captain Marvel. Entirely in that, Brad Pitt's almost the ingenue in this, and he... And he he gets vanquished at the end uh, and it's the young person, the young uh, unexperienced person who's learning the hard lesson, which is just a, a, it shows you how deeply bleak this movie is. Oh, the, the bright light is extinguished. Yeah. Both oh. of them, his wife too. Yeah. It? Yeah. It's amazing yeah. that they, uh, that this was able to come out and be a big hit. I don't, uh, you know, it would help um, when you, it helps when you do it, you know, first essentially. Right? Yeah. So, like, <laughs> It's awesome. something that's very commercial, but also new to a, to a degree. Yeah, and it, it, it was good. I mean, obviously, that's you know, another it, good factor. Yeah, <laughs> if you could open the movie, and the movie is good, word of mouth will spread, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you got the two thumbs up on the poster, and, and this is still grown up coming to the movies, and this is a grown up movie, really. So, oh, absolutely. I mean, this came out the same weekend as Showgirls, and many people, including myself, argue this was probably the more adult movie of the two. That was the same weekend. Lord, I feel like this is the most frustrated Morgan Freeman is in this movie right here, where he's throwing the knife at the board. Yeah, it's like I don't know what to do anymore. Like, well, he's what... throwing away his precious metronome. So yeah, like, yeah, he, yeah, he trashed the metronome, and now he's just like he's chuck he's chucking a knife at the dartboard in the middle of the night. He's waking up. He's no longer you know. Even this, it is it is graphic, but it's far enough away that we don't necessarily have to relish the details. Um, it's such a this is a the descriptions of some of these too yeah you just kind of get into it and it's like this one's a jigsaw trap through and through yeah really very much so right um because there's a solution (laughs) exactly save your life but i guess the the lawyer has that too right where he has to cut a bunch of himself off to jesus that's nasty to think about (laughs) well that's a jigsaw trap and the idea of that yeah no one would actually survive this you're cheating so it's an amanda trap (laughs) Yes, yes. Or the other guy <laughs> whose name escapes me. Uh, it's a, it's it's a Cos- Costas Malior trap. Thank you. Costas Mandalore? Costas Mandalore. He's, my, he's one of my favorite Star Wars Mandalore. characters. One thing I love about that series is you have characters that were like 
literally cameos in one movie right. and become the protagonist two or three sequels later. The cop that was like featured briefly yeah. in one movie is the, is the, like, the guy. Like four has a guy for like one guy line being tortured. Three. Yeah. And then Scott <laughs> Patterson takes yeah. the reins. Oh, wait. Who gives the worst performance in any of those movies. And that's oh, yeah, insane. he's terrible. And has the, and he has he also he has the luck of being named Scott Patterson though so it really worked right. out for him. That's true. So has anyone seen? Just curious, what's the running time? Where are we now in the movie? Because this ninety four minutes. 90, yeah, ninety four minutes. Four minutes a two hours. Six and minutes here minutes. we go. So, the last so, he, fourth. so he's the last half hour of the movie. It's yes. This guy was swimming with sharks. <laughs> Detective. And so, oh, it's, a, it's such a great turn, by the way, because you know you're oh, sitting, you're sitting in the theater scene. thinking they're gonna eventually have to find this guy and like get in a gun battle or something, right? He right. fucking walks into the police station. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of you know, unusual structure, do yeah, as yeah. you said, to have him come in and surrender a half hour before the end, where he becomes you know a full blown supporting character for the last two reels of the movie. He probably just cut Sorry, his hair, I right? I'm now I'm, I'm buying into this now that he had hair and then he shaved it before this happened. I I, I think yeah. I'm, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, like such so, so deliberate too, where he's he's done the finger the fingers obviously, but like the yeah. blood he has because they say right the blood there's some other person that we don't even know, like which is presumably Gwyneth Paltrow, right? That's the idea. Yes. Um, but the idea that he comes in, he could be clean, but he's choosing not to be. He's choosing to have blood all over himself. That's a great. Great, uh, great moment again of a, a very like uh, of of a of a normal image that is uncomfortable to see the splotches of blood, and then you go to him like dipping the the hot tea bag, yes. which just a, it just feels gross, even though it's just a hot tea bag. Now, Spacey uh, before Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, I don't think I would have recognized Spacey from anything. Right, that was kind of his big. Uh... Oh, he is really good now. Yes, in, yeah. in terms of like, yeah, having like significant so stuff to do. Like he's been, he's been like, he's been like smarmy <laughs> villain guys or smarmy supporting characters and things like Working Girl or the See No Evil, yeah. Hear No Evil. But yeah, in terms of bad like, guy in that Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Yeah, but yeah. in terms of like, uh, in terms of like a major role, yeah, like Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, I think is like the like the yeah. most high profile. Unless, thing that he and look who we got here is the lawyer. Is it Schiff? Yes, is it Schiffer? Yeah, Schiffer upper. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. West Wing. Totally he's yeah. rocking, rocking a bow tie too, so you know he's yeah. evil. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think of some of the movies that were inspired by this that were not great. Like, what was that one with uh, Dennis Quaid and um, Switchback? Yes, yes Switchback. Danny yeah, Glover. Switchback. Yep, yep. Yes. Danny Glover. Lover with the porno in his car, with a car filled with porn uh, magazine cutouts. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, just like Pulp Fiction, there's a lot of the imitators that came from Seven that are mostly miss uh, as far as the creativity goes. I do feel like Eight Millimeters was better than it was given credit for when it came out. I think Brandon's a fan, right? Uh, I, I respect a lot from it, but it's kind of humorous uh, the way they treat the pornogra- uh, pornography yeah. industry. Uh, it was at a time when porn was completely taboo, and yeah. um, now being what it is, it's kind of humorous that the way they take it. But I mean, well, I find a lot of hard. Joel Schumacher's non-Batman movies are really weirdly Puritan, especially in the yeah. later years of his career. You know, Eight Millimeter, uh, you know, Phone Booth, which basically argues that the guy deserved almost deserved to be shot for thinking about adultery. Um, 
But yeah, I, I think Nicolas Cage is wonderful in that picture. No, and Joaquin Phoenix is uh, outstanding. Yeah. Like, and the, the scene where he calls the mother of the victim to ask permission to take revenge is something I've never seen in the movie before. Um, before or since, frankly. Um, no, the, the first half of that movie is very strong, I think. I think it moved up. You're right. I think it, once, it, once it goes into you know, hardcore territory, literally, uh, yeah. I think it kind of gets, you're right, it's a little melodramatic, you know, it's a little silly. Like, oh no, these people enjoy sex in a strange way. It's the devil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I guess people, so, swimming of sharks is right before this, and that's like a but that's like a smaller movie. Yeah. Anyway. That's a limited release. The yeah, ref, yeah, the mean, ref is, but that's a flop. I mean, there's so yeah. it's like he's doing stuff, but yeah, I mean, yeah, he's that, working. Uh, he was the, the the villain for I think the second season of Wise Guy. That was one of the first shows to be heavily serialized in a way that, you know, now we take for granted, Buffy, X-Files, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, he was the, the villain on the most celebrated season of that show. But that was a call television show. We're, we're avoiding the fact that the, there's an added context to Kevin Spacey now that makes him even creepier in this movie. So it's... it's no. Wasn't there. Oh, yeah. Whatever. I, mean, I, ran, I lost interest in him as an actor before any of that. <laughs> and it's not even like the things that he's allegedly had done. It's more of the it's more of the reaction he's had as a person to those things that makes him seem creepier. The weird like YouTube videos he posts and whatnot. That's like that's the stuff that makes him just seem odd. Those things started before that, where he wanted to be seen as Bob, you know, Bobby Darren or yeah, Hey Pax. He's the cool leather clad. You know, it's like he want he wanted to be a movie star in the traditional way. But despite being like he's like a theater guy, so he's like he's overly right. showy at the same time with all yeah. that. Great, so. he was so great. And same with you all, he was so great for this five or six years. He did so much good work, you know, in American uh, Beauty. Yeah, pulling out of fashion. Well, he's great in the Negotiator. Like I think that's a oh good, yeah, I really like the Negotiator. That was a good. Is that well, like like, like basically everyone else in the cast, down, including the director, pay it forward, killed everyone. Oh yeah. <laughs> Which, for the record, other than the ending, I think that movie is fine. Oh my god! Uh, what's the, the uh, what's the Alan Parker the rest of the Oh Gale. yes, the life of David Gale. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. A, a movie so ridiculous, I magically guessed the ending from the previews. <laughs> I'm still already taking the wrong roles at that, at that point. He's already taking roles you don't want to see him in. Where yeah, got, like, sex scenes and stuff. You know, well, and then it was funny because when he played Lex Luthor, like I think Scott, you put it at the time, like it was at a time where uh, Kevin Spacey needed Superman more than Superman needed Kevin. Yes, Spacey. when if, when and, he, the Superman death of Superman with the Tim Burton one, Spacey was floating as Luthor because he just broke it out a few years ago, and it would have been a huge get. I mean, it would have been the equivalent of Nich- Nicholson being Joker. Mm-hmm. But by the time the movie actually got made, it was well, I guess Brian Singer's doing this and. So I guess Kevin Spacey will be Luther. That's nice. Yeah, um, it is. It's good. It yes, the timing is what's the problem. But like, it's good casting. It just doesn't help that it's a bad movie. <laughs> that's not, that's right. a yeah, well, that, and frankly, he's not good in it. No, he's one he's, of the reasons. Well, he's very big. He's he goes really. Big. He, he's he looked. Well, because it's trying to be like a sequel to the Donner thing, right? So he's like, well, I yeah, guess he's trying just, to ape Hackman. I got to do Hackman. I got to do it bigger. Yeah. I got to be bigger um, than everyone on screen, and you have like Parker Posey turning it up to eleven, and obviously John Cho's hogging a lot of screen time. So I mean, it's just <laughs> Cal Penn. Really Cal Penn. Sorry, Cal Penn. All the Cal, lines. I'm sorry, I, I think I think Kumar, not Harold. 
<laughs> that was the weirdest thing, him in that movie, and just that really nothing, was. Because like... it was like a news story. That's what killed me. Where it's like Cal Penn joins <laughs> Superman Returns. <laughs> like... Oh, you know what? Wait a minute. Um, hmm. Wait. To, to, that just said population eight million. Is, I'm trying to think. Oh, is it one too it, high? Are you going to cross reference that with all the populations you know offhand well, of no, major no. cities? Eight million makes me think it's. I think that's New York. Like that's pretty big, man. Eight million in nine in nineteen ninety five. I think it, maybe it is supposed to be like definitely know where you can get to in an hour from New York that looks like the end of this. No, 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 no. I think we've all yeah agree. It's all literally not a real place, but like, hmm, kind of like how Gotham is New York, but it's not really New York. Or no, wait, it's Gotham, Chicago. Gotham's Jersey. Oh, it's New York. Okay. <laughs> but they shoot. But the Dark Knight shot in Chicago. Well, yes. the Dark Knight shot Chicago, but then Dark Knight Rises, Chicago and Pittsburgh and L.A. The Washington State population in 1995 was 5.4 million. Let me see. But Seattle, you know, they could have just quarantined that part off. And you got yeah, to- but Seattle isn't a crime. <laughs> city is like... No, see, New York was eight, 18 million people. Wow. Well, New York's crime, you like... City though Pittsburgh or some Philadelphia yeah. or something you know like I think that's yeah. what it's for God that smugness just did not tra- I just it so a little went a long way with Kevin Spacey and <laughs> so so to, so to speak to this Nancy are you are you just checked out at this point from this movie like as far as this no, it, it, trio it's still, goes it's totally riveting I just think Spacey at least plays it as if what he's saying should make everyone in the audience hang their heads in shame for being part of uh, modern society, and it doesn't connect. Not even the way that De Niro's rambling in Taxi Driver does. It's partly Spacey's playing it as this sort of, I'm a smug supervillain who knows, which it takes us away from the, the first two hours of the movie. I don't feel like we're dealing with a supervillain. I feel like we're dealing with a, just a very clever serial killer. This whole ending thing and, and, the, and the, the, the putting her head in the box and getting Brad Pitt to get, it makes him a little more of a master, master criminal mastermind. And those guys I mean, are just... Think of the things he set up, though. Like, the, the damn guy that's been in the room for a year and everything. He has pictures never every happened, day. Nothing like that is even close to ever happened in real life. There's never been, like, a really interesting criminal mastermind. So the more but this isn't reality. Mean on that, what? This is, n- no, none of this movie's in reality. Which is why later when he says, it's a fine, it's not, it's a shitty world, but I'm fighting for it, I don't feel like I've seen the real world represented. I feel like I've seen a more pulpy enjoyably cynical world presented, but isn't really the real world. Well, his experience is the city he lives, lives on and the media he takes in. So whatever it's the world is whatever he's consuming himself in. So he could, I mean, we could see this whole world, but the one he sees is the one that concerns him. Right. But Morgan Freeman at the end, basically, you know, confirms that the world is a miserable place. And I think, you know, it might be, but it's not as miserable as this movie. Want. Is there a better version of this kind of character that you can think of? Like after this? Yeah, after this? Yeah. No. My mind goes to spoilers, Bill Paxton and Frailty. Oh, great. That's a great <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Well, he's a reluctant murderer. Yeah, and he's, but he's doing because he was he's chosen seen, and he yeah, has yeah. reasoning. And also, the, the movie's also entirely focused on him, so it makes yes. you know, it's not the last 30 uh, minutes of it. I will say, you know, seeing this on opening weekend, this whole car ride is incredibly intense. Oh, yeah. Because you don't well, we have, know what's coming. Yeah. I mean, you know it's somewhere in the realms of 
you know, plausibility. It's not like aliens are going to come down from the sky or anything. Uh, this isn't a Cloverfield movie, but well, control uh, has changed. It's now yes, exactly. in, under we were John Doe's in control. John Doe's game now yeah. says Somerset. <laughs> <laughs> and again, because this is this is so unconventional in terms of how these kind of films play out, right? Where you have the end is you know a slow car ride and a chit chat. Yeah. Um, well, out to empty field. It's not a big. Yeah, it's incredibly. It was incredibly exciting. You know, it's not going to end well. You know, by the way, Kevin Spacey is acting. Well, by the way, he turned himself in to let this play out. Yeah, yeah. feel bad, Brad Pitt being not as intelligent as yeah. he. He's about to have that that north by northwest crop duster scene intensity of just being out and what's his truck coming? What oh, like any anything yeah. something. My we, we line yeah, where they find the dead dog and he goes, I didn't do that. Yeah, that's, like that. yeah, that's yeah. a good lot. Yeah, the we skipped over by the line, but it's it's what Summer says is if John Doe's head splits open and a UFO should fly out, I want you to have expected it. Like it's just like right. it sets up this kind of <laughs> what is going to happen. It's just yep. it's also just drolly humorous. I just I just enjoy that. So here we go. Is when he starts cracking his voice starts big speech. Yeah, to believe him, you know, and I'm like. Eh. I don't know. I mean, I don't I, think he believes it. I think it's, it's, I don't think the movie, I mean, again, I think the movie says, okay, he's got a good point, but you're allowed to have villains that make sense without justifying their actions. The same thing with, you know, and, and, and again, overpopulation is a myth, but let's humor me for a minute. The whole, you know, yes, Thanos has valid reasons for wanting to decrease the right. population. It doesn't justify him snapping half the world away. He's uh, less of a, Thanos, I believe more is someone who believes he's right than. Yeah. You don't think you don't think Spacey thinks what he's doing is right? Is that the? I think he does, but I think we're also presenting a world that is visibly a shithole, and so we're supposed to feel like, oh man, he's right. We're all a bunch of losers because we don't think about the seven deadly sins. But I don't think the seven deadly sins are on anyone's mind for good reason because they're only in Shazam. You don't hear about them in anything but Shazam and this. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Do you hold that one all night? Do you, do you, do you <laughs> I mean, as so of us on, more than half of us on this podcast are the chosen people, do you feel like that might play a role? I'm serious though. Do you think that might play a role? The fact that we're just not, I mean, that's not a, really a factor in some of our lives I beyond, beyond a vague understanding of them. Because I'd imagine other people that are more religiously inclined or at least have the Sunday school training or what have you might be more predisposed to that concept. As, as conservative a Jewish guy, and I never heard him mention. They said, you know, I mean, Shazam. I only heard about it from Shazam. Oh, wait, I gotta ask, what is this Shazam thing you're talking about? <laughs> I, because I know the movie Shazam, I know the movie Shazam, and it's not in the movie Shazam, so... Yes, it is. <laughs> it, not kind of. All of the villains are the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, well, it's a good yeah, I, forgot. I didn't yeah. like that movie, so I guess I've... There, there are seven crazy CG characters that are all constantly referred to as the seven deadly sins of that no, movie. I totally forgot. <laughs> in Shazam, all the way back to the beginning of Shazam in the 40s or whatever, he becomes Shazam. The kid becomes Shazam by going to this weird place where he, in the movie, he meets Jimon Hansu, right? Who is actually yeah, Shazam. Yeah. He's older Shazam. In, in this yeah. hallway of the seven deadly sins, for some reason, and you see the different statues of the seven deadly sins, and that's that's where he has his origin story. I'll put, I'll put I'll put this out there. I had no familiarity with Shazam outside of seeing that movie and knowing that he exists beforehand. So I didn't know anything about the Seven Ooh, Deadly Sins. Old, old Shazam comics are great. I, what I'm saying is though, I didn't know anything about Seven Deadly Sins being in you know connected to that comic series before watching that movie. 
I did know about the seven deadly sins before seeing this movie. Maybe not by heart. I couldn't just rattle them all off right away. But the idea of this is a thing, yes. I was aware of that. They were on the poster too, if you case yeah. you needed a reference. They were there. To be, and the film was marketed with a certain expectation that audiences would be vaguely aware of what they were. It hammered I mean, into your mind of the trailers too, yeah. I mean, that's that was it. the Ten Commandments. They're a little more rooted in... Well, it no, sounds cooler when you're dealing with the seven deadly sins as opposed to the Ten Commandments. I, I look. I mean, um, I would say as a person who was uh, who was born and raised in like you know Catholic school and and everything, and I was never super religious, but that's the education I have. Um, yes, obviously, when I saw this movie, I knew what the seven deadly sins were and stuff. Um, I will say that I don't because um, I've I've heard Yancey say this before, and I think it's an interesting take, but. My, my, I guess, interpretation of when, when John Doe gives the speech about there's this, we see a sin every day and we never do anything. I never in the, I was never, I never felt shame as, and that's a person who grew up knowing what those sins were. My feeling was always more like, oh my God, it's, it's so scary that a person like John Doe, you know, has nothing in his life that now he's just taking it out of the world and he's using that's guess, and, and that's just what my version is. That doesn't mean I'm right or whatever. But yeah, so I never thought of it as a sh- shame. The audience. Yeah, I never felt shame. I felt his conviction oh. to it was scary. What was scary? Yeah, because the movie because the movie's yeah. not trying to be Taxi Driver. It's not trying to comment yeah. on specifically is, society. He is very much supposed to be Travis Bickle. He's I mean, like you can see, you can see the inspirations in the writing as far as what it's drawing from to make this story. But in terms of this movie representing what the '90s are like, I don't think it's trying to do that. I think it's just being a very stylish exercise and like how we can make something creative and new and draw on some ideas. Yeah, I personally never felt like I don't think there's, so, I don't think there's social commentary like, going on here. I was just like, oh crap, life. this guy is twisted. That's all I thought. Like I didn't. I feel like the movie goes for a little bit of preaching, which is I think unfortunate. It's the only mark I would hold against it. Hmm. Because I, you know, like, you see a sin on every street corner. And those aren't things we think of as sins. I, that's not. That's just the modern. Well, that's life. the idea. It's a disproportionate response. Yeah. He's not wrong that you know there are things that we used to be a bit more judgy on that now we sort of let go for better or worse. I mean, you know, you always hear the stories about all the dumb stuff you could get stoned for in the Bible, but the idea is that he is punishing any crimes with capital punishment. I mean, and that's why he's a villain. Let me allow reveal my ignorance. Where did the seven deadly sins? Where, what is that tradition? Does that come from? Uh, I think it's Christianity, but you'll have to double check. Yeah, it is it's, a, it's Christian, Christian teachings, yes. Yeah. What? Sorry. Post Ten Commandments. They're not even explicitly listed in the Bible. I'm seeing, so it's. I mean, it's like I, pre pre modern religion. I think from the Dr. Seuss book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> seven deadly sins were first, were first suggested in the 1995 movie Seven. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, like I, I don't know. I, I put this more on John Doe than I do a commentary on the people, but like, and it's just scary that the guy, like, what a guy can turn a guy like him into, and yeah. it become because he hates how things evolve and move on and progress and stuff. Like I had a guy when I worked at, uh, I worked at circuit city in college and we, one of the Harry Potter movies came out on DVD and we put it on the demo TV to watch. And he had it. He went apeshit because witchcraft was bad and stuff. I'm like, this is like the early two thousands. I'm like, Ooh, that, that guy would be John Doe. Like that's, uh, yeah. 
he didn't kill anybody, but I don't that I know of. But that's the type. That's what the kind of guy John Doe is like. Well, and it's it's very unfortunate how little we've progressed in that sense. And I remember it's a fun show. Uh, uh, Net, uh, Teenage Bounty Hunters on Netflix from a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's takes place in a religiously conservative private school environment. And if you compare it to something like Saved from 20 years ago, I like nothing has changed. Nothing has yeah. changed. Yeah. Um, here's, uh, here's my third favorite Arquette, Richard Arquette. <laughs> I think, um, I think my, um, what I take away from the John Doe thing, again, getting, getting away from necessarily how the audience is supposed to perceive it is more the fact that, and again, I could be wrong, but I think before seven, the age of the seventies and eighties age of like the serial killer movies. It's very much that the serial killers do, like to kill. Um, they might have certain like patterns like, Oh, they only shoot people in the head. They only chop, they whatever. But like, they don't necessarily have a moral reasoning. It's just, they have a compulsion to kill. So I feel like with John Doe, it's more like he has this purpose that he feels in life. I guess, Again, I could be wrong. Purpose, but, like, but he not... loves the theatrics. He oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, but like Texas Massacre, they don't really have that. Like even in, I don't think um, Sons of the Lambs. I think, I mean, that's Hannibal Lecter. He just he really likes killing and eating people, right? Well, I don't. Hannibal Lecter is is a snob. He thinks you know, right. Yes. I mean, I think the Taxi Driver thing does. Well, I don't think Taxi Driver is trying to comment on the seventies. It's commenting on big city. Uh, the the way big city life can can grind you down in the same way this is, but I think because we get to understand I, Travis Bickle is a little more in that movie, we understand that he's he's quoting stuff he read last night while he was in his. Camp. But you're also you're coming off of things like Vietnam and what have you that are directly connected to that time period, right? I don't think anything in I don't think it's I think anything in seven is direct is being directly tied to here. Which is, it's, no, it's, it's an intentionally a timeless picture. Post Vietnam area is all of this. This is all this is all post. America is worth anything. This is all America is a wasteland. It's the same timeline. It's the same era of disappointment. It's just 20 years later. It's just a little pulpy. Your taxi driver is more a product of, I think, a truly deranged at that right. moment guy. It's, Great. This Trader. is insane. He turned himself into the police 22 minutes ago. We're already at the box opening, and this might be the fastest feeling part of the movie, and it's some of the slowest scenes i was i was about to, i was about to mention that because i looked at the yeah. time i'm like holy crap <laughs> uh, there's the, i mean this movie as i mentioned was nominated for best editing it's uh, richard francis bruce is the editor mm-hmm. he's been in a lot of things including a lot of george miller films uh be a thunderdome and onward um the what i like about this sequence a lot is that it's very rapidly edited up until he gets the box and then everything slows down because mm-hmm. it becomes it becomes John John Doe in control of everything once again where you don't, like it's 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 panicky you don't know what's happening everything and then you go back to Mills and John Doe and suddenly the movie settles a lot down like you're saying it becomes very slow because now you have to mm-hmm. draw out what exactly is going on in this box because we we don't know we don't know what's yeah. in this box we don't want it to be something bad we know it is and it's very effective watching all of this. Like, Nancy, are you, like, beyond the preaching aspect, are you into this kind of reveal that's going on now with him? Oh, yeah, the reason this is, I mean, at this point, the movie's got you twisted so tight that they can do whatever they wanted. They could draw this out as long as they wanted, cut it. I mean, you, you, you know something bad is going to happen. I'm trying to think, what did I think was going to be in the box? What else could it have been, unfortunately? I mean, I, I wouldn't believe they would do it. At the point this movie comes out, I wouldn't believe they would do something like that. Still, well, I mean, the best kind of movie is one where I've been playing with.
around. Yeah. Well, and she's been she kind of gone, so it kind of out of my thing. mind. It, it puts her away. It takes her out of the movie for enough time for you to both forget about her, but also know exactly what we're talking about. And it's it, that's really effective. That the kind of movie that can make you still care about a character that you haven't cared about for the past hour. I mean, that's 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 good work. Well, you fall in love with her in that little scene with Morgan Freeman, you know. And she's the only thing in the movie that's like soft and nice. Everything else is so grimy. Richard Roundtree. I think he's cool. too cool in this. Kevin takes. He seems too much like Lex Luthor at this point. He doesn't seem unhinged at all. Which well, because he's makes... already won, right? I mean, that's that's his thing. Yeah, no matter what Mills does, he's, he's playing, already yeah. achieved some victory. Um, what stood out in this, you know, the ending for obvious reasons is how it circumvented two standard tropes of this film. First, the quote unquote damsel in distress actually dies rather than just being kidnapped and threatened. Never even had a chance. Pregnant, pregnant, never even had a chance. And you get the whole, put the gun down, it's not worth it, don't do it, blah, 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 where he says, fuck it, and blows his head off. Yeah, true. Without having to have him grab a knife first and throw it. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was, there was, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Usually what happens, you know, bad boys, for example, he puts the gun down, then the guy pulls out another gun, he's given him moral license to shoot him. Yeah, like if there was a minority, if there was a minority report going on here, somebody definitely got arrested. Right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a red ball. Definitely uh, <laughs> a red ball. Yeah, because Brad Pitt finds out she's pregnant in this scene too. Like he, yes. he did not know, and it's just bam, bam. It's I, very bam, easy bam. to spoof this, but I do think this is a good performance. Moment no, right I know, I, like, I know. Some. Uh, oh yeah, it's spoofable because it's good. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 unique and it's 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 compelling. And sometimes that's the easiest stuff to spoof. I mean, you know, we've been doing Tom Hardy Bane impressions for eight years. But part of the reasons that works is because it's so unique. And boom, he's down. The fire rise? Fade to black. Perhaps he was wondering why he'd shoot a man. Uh, quick flash frame. <laughs> and he didn't just shoot him, like, does he shoot him once or does he get him a couple times? Yeah, he, no, he, no, yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, he gets him down and then he's like, let me, and then let me, and then let me one more time. I, I want the coroner to know this was not a mistake. <laughs> and he just looks lo- like oh, yeah, he's empty. Like, there's he's no, empty there's now. nobody. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. That look he gives is quite good. That's pretty cool. And you go through all that emotion, and then you go to this shot that I guess we would see as objective. It's just the... Well, they have no idea, right? There's no radio to the helicopters. Two cops and a victim, like not knowing what the hell just happened. Yeah, he's pretty broken now. And they've been there all day dealing with it. Because if I recall, the scene takes first starts in the middle of the morning. Um, Mm -hmm. So they've been there for 12 hours. Or it's, you know, daylight savings or whatnot. It gets dark at (laughs) 4, you know. (laughs) What realistically happens at this point? What 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 hap- what, hap- what would happen next? You go to what? well, I'm guessing he doesn't. You know, he's cuts a deal. You know, obviously extenuating circumstances. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Probably, probably fired. doesn't go to jail. Probably but he fired from the force. And he probably, yeah, assuming he doesn't, you know, kill himself or what have you, he probably gets a job as a security guard. Somewhere. Buys a factory yeah, in Delaware, no, I- starts making soap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, yeah, if, if this were the Saw series, he would become a disciple of John Doe, and continue. <laughs> he would realize he would realize that John Doe was right, and 
The asking not to be billed, that's got to be at least a little ego thinking, but you can name me first in the credits, so I'm the first well, name I you see. Yeah. Um, first forensic man in the law office. What a credit. Because <laughs> he, uh, he gets billed twice in these credits. Oh, yeah. it's, he gets uh, first, sloth. and he gets... Victor goes, Sloth. <laughs> and he gets billing in order of appearance. Um, Assuming that uh, Arlie Ermey and Richard Roundtree suggest there was a lot cut out of the script or out of the movie at some point. Well, of course they do because they're not in it that much. So that's, of course, they're going to yeah. say that. <laughs> but, um, I, I'm sure when they signed on, there were just meaty pages full of all of their character development that were so bad. Well, I was John Doe in the third draft. <laughs> well, I mean, Roundtree's this was the 1990s when most movies were not two and a half hours. So. I would argue that this was pretty much what it was intended to be from the get-go. Yeah, uh, I know, it was I a two-hour movie, and that's basically what they were back then, and still are. You for the end credits here. You want to play the other movies that have credits running backwards game? Sure, go for it. There's a surprising amount. <laughs> really? Memento. Not Memento. No. The no. Conjuring. Not the Conjuring. Irreversible, because it's a package oh, yeah, movie yeah, anyway. Yeah. Oh. Uh, run, run, Lola, run. You know, run, oh, Lola. yeah, run, Lola, run. Hey, should... conjuring, conjuring the top credit is backwards. It absolutely is. Credits don't run backwards, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not an end credit, but it's still like a... We're thing. talking end credits. I don't know what else we'd be talking about. <laughs> what else? There's one you guys should know, I think. THX. One, one, two, oh, yeah! Oh, okay. You're right, yeah. THX, yeah. That's a pretty good movie. What did he end up doing later? <laughs> Great. Movie. Uh, he a movie about he made this movie about cars. Oh yeah, yeah. And then he, he produced some duck thing and yeah, uh, he, he bro he he made Marvel what it is today. Like he got it on the map. A Lord, a Lord of the Rings knockoff. <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. Wasn't something about thing? something about radios. Did I? Didn't he do the 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 Ford biopic, the car guy, or yeah. Oh about a man in his dream. I like that movie, uh, Tucker, he, the man in his dream. Oh yeah, I like it. I'm just being a jerk. Oh, uh, yeah. There's others, but I mean, those are the most significant ones. Uh, yeah. Stoker. Stoker does it. I like Stoker. Yeah. Stoker. God, I like that movie. That's a good movie. Uh, so we talked about Seven. Anything else on Seven? What else can we talk about here? That yeah, still holds up. <laughs> we'll have yeah. The whole, the whole number, like the Seven, is eight and a half, is nine. It's 10 with Dudley Moore. We'll eventually be able to do one movie for each number in the first. Oh, you can go pretty high. I've, I've played this game before. You can get you can get pretty up there before you have to start like really scratching. Can we count 11, 11, 14? has got like eight of them. Yeah. <laughs> the fifth element, sixth sense, 12 monkeys. Lucky number 11. 2049. Yeah, that's the kind of counts. 2049 is much later. We get to 2049. For a movie that made $300 million, um, there's no sequel. Uh, there's no prequel. There's no anything of that nature. There are comics. Seven comma two. There is a movie that was supposed to be a sequel that got turned into something else called Solace with Colin Farrell and Anthony Hopkins. Weren't they going to try to do uh, Somerset again, like a, a different detective story with Somerset? Uh, that, that I'm explored? sure it was in development at some point. Yeah. Uh, it probably had a page on Corona's coming attractions. Um, What's the... This is random. What's the Aaron Eckhart um, one, the serial killer movie, him and Swank and uh, Ben Kingsley? 
Suspect Zero. Suspect Zero. Uh, there we go. Yes. That's the director of a Shadow of the Vampire. That's like the one thing I few things I remember about that. Marine Marine Gay, whatever his name is. Yeah. 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 That's a weird one. That is a weird one. Zero. Is it any good? I don't think I've ever seen it. It was a summer. It was like late summer because my mom and I saw that in theaters because she's a, she was, she was a huge um, Shadow of the Vampire fan and we like serial yeah. killer movies. So it's like what's the one out. with the. Uh, the one that Andrew not Andrew he, not sorry not killers Carrie Ann Moss oh, take, taking Moss. lives yeah taking lives yeah, and uh, I right. saw that specifically because it was DJ Caruso and I love the Salton Sea so I was like I gotta see what he's doing next and then they made Suspect Zero and then he made other movies that I also don't like <laughs> um, including I am number that, of course the Snowman. Oh, I never saw it. Is it? Is, it's terrible. It was the worst movie of that year for me. Yeah, it's, it's certainly up there. Um, Which is, but well, we should have known that in advance because he gave us all the clues. But it was still, in fact, a terrible movie. <laughs> Peter, do you want to watch the snowman? <laughs> it is not very good. They didn't quite finish it. They had to scrabble what they could. Wait, is it Rebecca Ferguson? Is that who's in it? And yeah. Yes. And, and J.K. Simmons, inexplicably. Because <laughs> he has, the, the role he plays is so bizarre, less bizarre than Val Kilmer, but um, still bizarre. Oh, was dumb. God, he was in that. God, that's weird. It's a, it's a, it's a movie. It is a movie. I mean, when you got Alfredson saying, yeah, we had to, you know, we didn't have 15% of the script to film, but it probably still works. Like, <laughs> Um, but yeah, okay. So we talked about seven a lot. I think I we all really like this movie. <laughs> um, oh yeah, it's still, you know, it's 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 you know, in terms of the serial killer movies of that era, for me, it's Hansa Lamb's Seven, and again, you know, yes, it's arguably inferior, but I have a very soft spot for Copycat. I still think it is a very good movie that had the bad luck to open like a month after a quote unquote game changer. Yeah. You know? Are you a fan it's of The Watcher with Keanu Reeves and James uh, Spader? Yes, because I, I mean, it's not good, but Keanu Reeves is very good in it. For a movie that he didn't want to do, he certainly doesn't phone it in. Uh, there's stuff in there I like. Uh, the character interaction is good. I, I love that you know, James Spader basically takes the piss out of the whole, you and I are one and the same, you know, garbage. Um. I mean, I'm not going to say it's a must-see, but I enjoyed it. I, I um, only think of I think of that movie because it came out the same day as The Way of the Gun. That's the way, that's the way I remember The Watcher yes. existing. Uh, and Nurse Betty, I think, around the same time. Nurse Betty's later. Uh, that's like I think it's like a week later, two weeks later. Okay, yeah, yeah. But I but I like, I like Nurse Betty quite a bit. That's, yeah, that was that was a very unconventional Morgan Freeman performance at the time. And the first time I saw Chris Rock acting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like he's been funny. Uh, he he was acting in that movie. Was Aaron Eckhart in that too? Was yeah, Aaron Eckhart's movie? all over the place in two thousand, guys. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, he gets scalped in that movie. It's very violent. He does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that's why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's one of those movies that because it's not an action film or a horror film, the everybody views it as insanely violent. Um, it's like payback or you know Pulp Fiction or whatever. Or Joker, for that matter, uh, which wasn't nearly as violent as we'd been promised. I was very disappointed. But all the riots that have happened since because of Joker, get out of town. <laughs> okay, so we've talked about seven long enough, I think, and we're at the point where I'm getting um, 
I think, Swedish credits going on now on my screen. Um, so yeah, this has been our seven commentary check. Where can people find all of your guys' work? Brandon Peters, we'll start with you. Uh, you can find me in my written work at weisselblue.com. You can check out my brand new podcast, Brandon Peters Show, which is at brandonpetersshow.com, iTunes, or Apple Music, or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever. And uh, follow my exploits on Instagram and Twitter um, at uh, brandon4kuhd. Peter Paris, where can people find more of you? I haven't written in forever, which is terrible of me. Uh, but now that I'm unemployed, I guess I will be hopefully getting back into that uh i'm at uh why so blue yeah it's burns oh dot com yes i have nothing to say for myself you can catch me on this show when you invite me i'm at twitter yancy jack milky way blues has not seen an update in a while but check out what's there um facebook i should start a blog one of these days but you know we're not there yet wait didn't you do didn't you do an article for why so blue i did one but they that i had a child it just was just way too overwhelming. <laughs> the kid got in the way. Yes. Nine month old child. It's, it's, it's mainly because he wants to write and they're really having a battle about that. Yeah. Scott. Scott is- oh, good. Uh, Forbes.com, the ticket booth. Uh, Twitter is at Scott Mendelson. Everything I do is at thecodezeek.com and you can find me on Twitter, Darren's PS4. You can find this podcast everywhere you can find podcasts, but largely on iTunes. Uh, Audio Boom, Spotify, Stitcher, email us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all that. We got all those things going. Uh, what's next month? October? Well, that's our horror. We got to talk about our horror special. We haven't got into that yet, but we got to figure that out. So expect something horrific coming on. Snowman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have something fun for sure because that's a fun month for us on this podcast. But that is going to do it. So thank you once again, Peter Yancey and Scott for, and Brandon for joining me for this episode. Of course. Yeah, Always a pleasure. And until next time, so long and goodbye. You can have my